What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. This is a bonus episode working off of what we were talking about last time. I had a lot of requests to bring Patrick Holloman back to discuss the things that he did not have a chance to say because he had to bow out of the call early because that that conversation ran on way longer than I had anticipated. And but I have a toddler. <laughs> and he has a toddler. So, uh, brought him back to go over... Uh, general game design, maybe some of the similarities between FF7R and Final Fantasy 13, as well as the combat, and then uh, story changes. Uh, you know, I, I think you ended up. Did you end up seeing the rest of that conversation when we put the podcast live? I did indeed. Okay, so so you know where we went with that. So anything that you want to add to that, and I also have he on here as well. Uh, those of you who have been in the community for some time know him. Uh, he is a game designer as well. Um, working in Japan. Uh, Pat, one thing I don't know if we mentioned last time, you're working on a game right now, directing a game called Quartet, uh, the, being published by something classic. Oh, you, I think you pushed the button, but we can't hear you. There you go. Sorry, it's a very sticky button. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be um, a SNES-style um, well, reminiscent of SNES. There's, of course, more advanced technology working under the hood, but uh, yeah, so eight characters. Um, you basically get to select four from four chapters to start, sort of in a wild arms way, where you can pick any four of the four chapters in any order. Um, there are eight characters. All four stories come together, um, and you're going to be the, the the general plot, which we've uh, held back on, is that you're trying to prevent or end a war over control of the control of magic. So very trope tropish in the JRPG <laughs> tradition, but um, yeah, it's something we're we're proud of. We're actually going to have a demo pretty soon. Uh, we're gonna have invite pretty much anyone to play that um, as we seek some funding. Yeah. Uh, so you have that going on, of course. Also, the author of the Reverse Design series. Uh, all of that will be in the description. And so uh, the second part of the conversation, when we move off of that, is going to be talking about the spirit of Final Fantasy and um, trying to dive into a little bit of what Hironobu Sakaguchi's formula was for those early Final Fantasy games and, and try to dissect that. And that's why I wanted to have the two of you on who are game designers who have studied extensively uh, Sakaguchi himself, his approach, his methodology. So I uh, wanted to get some of your guys' ideas. I'm thinking about doing a video about that in the future. Uh, Pat would be joining me for that one uh, again. So uh, that's where we'll be going with this conversation. There will be time codes in the description for where we move off of FF7R specifically and into the Spirit of Final Fantasy, dis Spirit of Final Fantasy discussion. So... Uh, I'll pass it over to you now for, uh, for for the time being, Pat. If there's anything that you wanted to say, uh, moving off of the discussion that we had after you had to bow out last time. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing was when you guys were talking about Sephiroth dodging around, eating, you know, Force ghosts and whatever they was going on. I mean, who, who even knows? We don't we don't know the rules of what's going on with that. Um, the last couple of chapters there, um, and and he stabs, you know, different characters. I don't, I don't even want to get on the spoilers because I I don't even believe. Oh, that sorry. I should have said that. I should have said that first. Uh, this we, we are we are we are going to go into spoilers in this conversation. Right. I'll put that probably in the title still. But uh, we're spoiling the game here, so if you don't yeah. want spoilers, you got to leave. Okay, go ahead. We're, we're spoiling the game in as much as Tetsuya Nomura hasn't already, um, in a different <laughs> sense. But um, so I don't want to at his expense. I don't want to do that because he didn't know he was going to direct it, um, and I I think that the uh, anxiety of doing this, you know. Could have been great. I, I, 
like I said in the, in the first podcast, I do not envy the people who remake Final Fantasy VII, their task. It's a heck of a task. And if you don't have a huge pre-production where you sit down with the original authors and really come up with a very concrete plan, which I don't think they did because they had originally outsourced this project to another company. Um, if you don't have that period to really sit down and think things out and figure out what you want to say about the game, then um, I can see how the there could be some some strange trope pile up. Um, and I think that's what happened. And I don't even think that the directors of the next game, I'm not even sure that they really will commit to what happened in chapters 17 and 18. Um, Cause I, I don't know, like if, if you break the story that way, I don't know where you go. Um, that's not just totally, you know, just turn it up to 11 and then just stay at 11 for the entire thing. Um, and that you can't have a story that works that way, especially Final Fantasy VII. The whole thing is about pacing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wonder if they're going to dial that back um, in the next one. I mean, they, they must, right? You can't start a new game. It's going to be a totally new game. Um, you can't start a new game with that level of intensity and then, like, you know, and try and have, you know, ramp people up, have people fighting rats again or whatever they're going to do. Um, you know, you can't have that progression if you've already been super powerful. So I think they'll probably walk back um, all of the Genova, Sephiroth, alternate timeline, Force Ghosts, um, you know, teleportation with stabbing and all of that jazz. I think they're going to walk some of that back um, in the next one and then probably stay at a low level um, for however many sequels they're going to have. I think they've established their their fan base, right? They've established what the scope is, what the games are like. They don't need to, maybe they don't need to, you know, go full electric guitar on everything um, for the rest of the series. I think probably they've made a contract with the public of this is what it's going to be like. This is the latitude that we have. But maybe you know, bear with us, and and we'll we'll try and do something a little bit more uh, moderated in, in terms of rebuilding this 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 uh, game. So that yeah, that pretty much sums up my thoughts. I, you know, I it, it was ridiculous. It was very Advent Children. Um, I just don't see how or why anyone would stick with that the whole way through. So I think they'll they'll dial it back. So so you think that. Uh... Especially considering, like, how do you cross... Or, some people are speculating, how are you going to carry over, like, your progress from game one to game two? You think they'll probably just not even try? That I, they'll yeah. probably start you at level one again, or something like I that? Mean, so, I, I wonder, I mean, the, the, even if they don't start you at level one, they're going to have to effectively start you at level one, even if it reads level 30, right? Because mm -hmm. you're starting a new game, they're going to have to ramp up whatever's new, like the new mechanics or whatever... If you're if you're level one and new most important mechanic, you're level one, right? Uh, you could be level fifty if, but if you're only level fifty in blacksmithing and the game no longer requires blacksmithing, you're level one. Um, so they'll probably add some kind of new mechanic, something even if it's small. I mean, if you look at like uh, the Dot Hack games or the Xenosaga games, they tended to add something new to each game, and you either were explicitly or effectively scaled back in your power. Um, yeah. So I expect them to do that too. But that also means that, you know, fighting this version of Sephiroth who is even more powerful somehow, you know, with like teleportation and I don't even like, I don't even know all the things that he was doing. Um, I, I couldn't even parse a lot of that. Um, and he's eating, you know, destiny, like literally eating destiny or something like that. Um, you, you can't start from that point, right? You have to, you have to put a, some kind of reset button in the game. Um, so that's going to happen. How it happens, I don't know. Um, good luck to whoever has to direct that. And figure I'm out. really curious about that because there's so many more ways than just like the character's level that 
you essentially like scaled in power there. I mean, there's all the materia that you leveled up the whole game. Um, there's the weapons that you created materia slots for. Like each character has up to six weapons. Like, right. are you going to carry those weapons <clears throat> over all their stats? I mean, are you just resetting it all? I, yeah, I, I really wonder how you can justify I, resetting it. <laughs> I doubt that they reset it all the way, uh, given that it is one theoretically contiguous game. But, you know, like if you look at what Xenosaga did, um, if you had a lot of... Ach- I, don't, I, don't, I don't exactly remember the exact way it happened in Xenosaga, but if you had lots of uh, achievements or high level in Xenosaga 1, when you entered Xenosaga 2 with that data, you started with a lot more talent tree points. Um and you were like, whoa, okay. So in the, in the early beginning of the game, it was pretty easy. But you were still level one. So you weren't like one-shotting bosses. You just had... You, it wasn't that you had more power. It's that you had more options to start. Um, you could be like immune to more things or you could have more tactical abilities. But you, they weren't, you know, game-breaking. They just You just had more selection, more tactical breadth at that point. Gotcha. How do you think they'll handle that, Heon? Or do you even care oh, at this uh, point? <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, well, uh, I don't really care, but, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I really couldn't tell you. It's it's kind of funny because I this game used to be under CyberConnect 2's house, right? Mm. And uh, just today I bought their, um, you know, full weeb uh, Naruto uh, fighting game trilogy yeah. Yeah. HD pack uh, so I would have something to play with my son. And... I was kind of struck by those games are connected, right? There's like a, there's an overarching story and then each game tells like the next part of the story and then they add a little bit to the combat system and stuff like that. But it, they're, they're fairly, I feel like you can play them kind of in a row and go through them and it almost kind of feels like a, um, a single experience to a certain extent. So I, hmm, it's, it's hard to tell, but it wouldn't surprise me if what you get from the second episode is they basically just take the same combat system, just smash it through, you'll get the same materials, you'll just be doing the same thing all over again, except that they'll add a couple of new skills, they'll, they'll swap out the limit breaks. So in this part, you had cross slash or whatever, right? So in the next game, you'll get, uh, I don't know, Meteor Rain or something like that. Mm. and a couple of new materials and a couple of new skills for each of the characters and then they'll call it a day and then it'll be you know another um it'll be another 40 hour game where 20 or so hours are substantive story elements and the rest is uh, normal padding and uh it will feel like uh i don't know uh naruto mate heroes too right <laughs> it wouldn't uh, well, it that would wouldn't that really would... surprise me that would open it up to get the game out a lot quicker, I would think, if they did it that way, yeah. right? Maybe a year and a half development time or something. And, and you have to cheaper. think about it's, yeah, like you have to think expensive. about it. Yeah, you have to think about incentives, right? Because although I'm sure that if they did that, there are probably people today when they hear that will go, "Damn, that would be cheap," and I'd complain about that, and that I I don't buy that for a second. But the uh, the the reception I've seen so far and the arguments that I've seen people make when they're confronted with even just very tepid criticisms of the game uh, lead me to believe that even if they did that, people would would inevitably just kind of uh, take that in, in lockstep with the new game. They'd be like, no, this is great. This is fine uh, because I, I like this. This is good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I think they know that. 
I think Square Enix knows that looking at, uh, you know, it's it's the same for the company that I work for, right? A, a real extensive part of the work that I do is monitoring how people respond to other games. That's a huge part of the R&D portion of game design where we, um, we catalog the sales and the, so the polls and stuff like that on other games. And we get these huge freaking files on uh, recent games and their performance and the feedback. And we pair over those and we're told to pair over those for hours at end before we start uh, working on uh, pre-production plans, right? Formulating ideas and making drafts and, and stuff like that. And I have no doubt that Square Enix does the exact same thing and uh, if they're looking at the response to this game, I don't think anyone in that building is sitting there thinking, damn, like, oh, uh, what are we going to do with these materials, right? Do we need uh, three extra tiers of spells now? Uh, oh, my God, how are we going to handle this? They're probably thinking, well, this is it's pretty simple. We'll just take what we have. We'll move it over. Uh, we'll uh, set everything back. We'll, um, it's, it's a video game. Let's, you know, they'll take it in stride. They'll be wowed by the amazing graphics and um you know production values so i don't think they're worried about uh, the nitpickers that exist in the minority pockets on the internet uh, people like me so <laughs> <laughs> people like me too yeah well, and uh, we, I don't th- we don't we don't factor into that equation at all we're, you know we're not even a blip on the radar speaking about um CyberConnect 2, you brought that up. I was watching the some of the initial reveal trailers um, yeah. where they showed some of that stuff from the first bombing mission, and I was actually very surprised how almost step-for-step step identical the end product ended up being to the CyberConnect stuff. Like when Barrett turns back to Cloud and says, like, you better be worth the money. And like tells Wedge to like hurry up or whatever, and then like how Jesse comes and does a spin kick into the soldier's stomach, like right off the train. Yeah. Like so much of that looks almost exactly how it ended up looking in the final game. So it was like the whole idea of pulling it back into Square Enix because they were worried about the quality. Obviously, like visually, it's way more impressive in what Square Enix ended up doing versus what CyberConnect was doing. But I found it interesting how closely it still really followed what that initial uh trailer looked like sure you definitely don't want to pay for mocap twice that's no point (laughs) i i wonder how much they even paid for that because um i know that square enix has a really impressive library of of uh, animations sitting on their hard drives over there so like um Cloud moving through debris and stuff like that. That's probably just, um, you know, Noctis moving through debris with minor tweaks. Um, And that's not a criticism. That's just how it works in the AAA industry, right? Sure. Why? But, yeah. It's it's strange because a lot of people seem to take it for granted that they've spent, uh, like, an insane amount of money on this remake. And uh, I have no doubt that they have. But on the other hand, I am also kind of sitting here scratching my head thinking, I do wonder... Uh, how much they managed to sort of turn around from from their previous lineup of games in terms of assets and stuff like that. Um, it's difficult to tell at this point. It's like it becomes a bit hard to tell exactly uh, where one project ends and another project begins uh, at Square Enix at this time. The NPCs uh, were one place where I was like, 
These guys have seen some seen some things before. These are veteran NPCs. <laughs> <laughs> These guys don't fit wear a doll. Like they just don't. Do, do you remember? Like we remember. Let's. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig, digress and bitch about this because this is a legitimate nitpick. But do you remember what Final Fantasy VII NPCs look like? Yeah, it sure. did not look like a guy Normal who people. plays synth at the corner bar, right? Like, like a guy who is like went to you know like Occidental College. They, they, don't, they don't look like that. They look like <laughs> like worn down people in like 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 rags tied around their head and like loose flowing things because they're wading through garbage with plain shirts, right? That was an artistic direction that was legitimate. Yeah. That wasn't a, a graphical problem. Like sure. the only person who resembles really what they looked like was Johnny. Everyone yeah. else was just yeah. like, like, yeah, I got a, I got a real fashion upgrade. Well, a lot like, of them, a lot of them had that cyberpunk like style, yeah, but, you know, like right the spiky yeah. hair and the crazy sort of like, and I that mean, element of Midgar's missing a little bit. But like, sure. like they're not weathered or ripped and torn. Like they all look like yeah. they, I don't know, they, I, they look like they just came out of like a hot topic or something. Like it's just, <laughs> I, 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 I can't I don't understand it. Like it doesn't make sense. They don't look like their their clothes do not match their backgrounds in many cases. Um, and they just all look so unrumpled, like they're just so everything's so pressed, <clears throat> right? Like I, I know that texture is difficult to do, text like especially like fabric textures. There's a whole software industry around that one thing, but you can do a little bit of grime painting on people. And uh, textures in general were kind of one area where I think it's a, almost a consensus where this game uh, lacked a little bit, like textures on even like doors and things like that were real kind of sketchy in this game. As yeah. good as it was in other areas, like the yeah. textures seemed to be one area where it wasn't as stellar as the rest. The of game it. looked beautiful, but like just everyone was just walking around in a freshly dry cleaned, nice suit when they're in <laughs> sector seven, you know, sifting garbage. That's kind of the thing that's so strange about the game, at least for me looking at it uh, with my experience where I'm like on one hand, it's this, uh, you know, you look in one spot and it looks like this highly, um, polished expensive triple a game but in other places it looks oddly rushed and kind of cobbled together right and that's a common criticism you hear a lot of people talk about that one skybox uh, at one point that's like super low resolution mm. and you're you're sitting there wondering like you could replace this this with a higher resolution skybox in like two minutes right it's just opening the software it's literally like copying paste pasting in a different image file granted you have a higher definition image file but i can't they they can't not have that because obviously that image file is is compiled from some kind of 3d render somewhere right so it, it, it you're just kind of sitting there why would that be there right why, why did that happen like that seems like such a strange thing to 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 get wrong, and usually when I look at that, that suggests that there's been some cutting corners or a little bit of rush or some pressure, right? <laughs> got to get it out fast. It got lost in the edit, right? We, we weren't paying attention, and that doesn't seem to jive with a lot of the other facets of the game. So I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of curious about exactly the nature of this, um, you know, the, the game going back in-house and um how much that set them so, back yeah how much that actually set them back and um uh, yeah just uh, yeah I'm, I'm i'm just a bit 
uh, confused by it. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking this is this is kind of strange. It feels like there's a story there somewhere that will come out in I don't know 20 years time and uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know po the polygons are there will be a new polygon article right the oral history of Final Fantasy VII remake in 20 <laughs> years from now and we'll uh, we'll we'll find it out at that time. Tase is like 60 years old and old and gray, and he's like, damn, this didn't pan out the way I thought it would. <laughs> we'll download that article directly into our brains. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wonder if there was a, this is this is my instinct. I have no factual evidence to back this up, but my instinct is that they, um, somebody changed all of the skyboxes right at the last minute, maybe the director, because like that sunlight that hits Midgar, that feels weird. Things don't look lit right with that. Um, maybe that's maybe that's just my indelible impression of the sunless Midgar of of you know yester game, mm. but um, I <clears throat> those gaps in the sunlight streaming in don't seem to hit things quite the right way. Um, to me, something just something seems just a little bit off, and I wonder if someone drastically changed the lighting rather sort of close to the last minute. Um, but I, I I don't have any evidence for that concretely. Total, total side tangent. Uh, people will call me a purist, but I don't like Midgar and sunlight. Like I know it makes sense. There's sun, right? There's going to be sunlight, yeah. but I, it's just there's this idea of Midgar so covered in smog that sunlight literally can't like perforate it, and then you have the plate on top of that again, and it just kind of you know it's supposed to be just real dark all the time, and I I get it, like. I don't know if it's light in Midgard this time around because there's a dedication to realism or if it's just because they want to create more variety in the environments, right? And it can get old if you're spending 40 hours in darkness, right? Uh, I know people who thought it got old being in Midgard for seven hours. So, I mean, <laughs> I was probably one of those people, which is why I enjoyed getting out on the world map, right? Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, I never had this dream of spending an entire uh, game in Midgar. That was never uh, a desire of mine. Something but, that you look um, forward to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, uh, I, I get it. Like, I get the choice to do it, but I, 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 it's not really even a purist thing. I just don't like it. Like, the, the vibe, it gives it kind of like a – it ain't so bad. Being in the slums in Midgar, they, it ain't that bad, right? We, we've got clothes and water and – it's uh, you know, it's it's jolly good, right? And I'm We've sitting dry cleaning and sunlight. Yeah, right. And I'll say, no, 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 no. Come on, this is a place where people step on broken syringes and you get mugged in back alleys, right? This is not like <laughs> I don't I don't remember um, I don't remember anyone being jolly in the slums in the original game, except with like um, a stab of really dark irony, where it's like, oh, I woke up this morning. I guess that's you know, I guess that's great. Wasn't robbed in my sleep. <laughs> um, so, is there anything else, uh, Pat, that you thought about or wanted to add to the conversation regarding the maybe like structural game design side of it, uh, combat, um, any of those things? Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I wonder how long boss fights are gonna get, right? Yeah, I mean, how long they are already? That's to me, that's like I would make boss fights like that in the end game or the post game, no problem. Post game, I mean, some of the post game boss fights from the original are quite long. If you there's a ruby weapon where you don't have as much control over how much damage output you have because you have to really, um, you might only have one character and you might be doing a lot of healing. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think you know that's fine in certain contexts, but um, you know maybe this will serve as a bridge to talking about how this compares to Final Fantasy thirteen. Um, but always having to stagger everything means that boss fights are going to get very long. You have you div things are going to divide naturally into um, two periods where you have um, or three really. So you have your learning phase where you simply are learning what the boss does and how to interact with the boss in the proper way. Then you have to actually apply that when the boss's next vulnerability cycle comes up. And then you have the stagger phase where you can actually do the damage. And so that big front end where you're learning how to do things can take a long time where you have to, you learn how to execute uh, the, the maneuvers you need to, to both stay alive and to stagger. And then, you know, you might stagger it, but you also might not do such a great job or you don't have the boss's weakness. And so you only do a certain amount of damage and you have to go through that whole cycle again. And, um, you know, like you have two, you sort of two choices there. You can either have bosses be killable in two staggers, or you're going to, you know, and that might feel like anticlimactic, or you might have, you have to keep adding stagger after stagger after stagger, and then things get really long-winded. So the whole stagger mechanic altogether puts you in a bit of a bind in that um, it, it, it forces you to have long boss fights unless you're going to repeat mechanics. If you could do it really elegantly, like, you know, like Shigeru Miyamoto, of course, in uh, Yoshi's Island is probably the best example. Um, those boss fights, the, there's a learning curve for each at the beginning of each boss fight, but it feels so natural um, based on what you've been doing in the platforming that you learn it really quickly, but you still feel satisfied. I mean, I think the for me, the pinnacle of game design is when you're able to deliver a new challenge to the player at just the right level of difficulty that it's like they're 99% of their ability to do, but they can still do it on the first time. Um, that is, for me, that's, that's the highest art in video games. And I, I think the... It's very, very, very difficult to do. Requires very certain techniques, and the stagger mechanic does not lend itself to that. So, uh, I wish them luck. I want, I want them to succeed. I don't want anyone to believe. I don't want them to succeed. But I wonder where they're going to go when they have to do bigger and badder boss fights than what they've already done. Yeah, it always becomes an issue of um, scaling with sequels. That's kind of like the whole. I think conundrum with sequels that at least that I have seen is like, you got to go bigger than the last time. And like, at what point do you reach a ceiling to where it becomes tedious or, or the, the audience has become so used to this, <laughs> everything becoming it's, they just become acclimated to the level of intensity and it's no longer intense. Like it loses all of its meaning. Right. What were you going to say? Ian? Oh, nothing really. I was just, okay. it, it becomes a it becomes a parody of itself. I was just going to ask if uh, you know the Scarlet slap fight uh, on the Junon Cannon was going to have a stagger mechanic, but <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to say regarding the stagger mechanic. This is going to be really quick. Um, I'm I'm calling out to uh, one of our viewers, Dude McGuy. Um, he is somebody who has studied the battle mechanics of FF13 very closely. And he just, in terms of like battle mechanics, I think he has a really sound idea of how things work. And he holds the position that the stagger meter in this game is actually not really as central or as important as people seem to think it is. And he approached the fighting in a very different way. And so I'm not going to speak for him, but I do, if he wants to, I'll pin it in the comments below if he wants to write out what he's been sharing with me about this um in terms of like the the need not to focus so much on staggering just to give like an alternate perspective on it 
pin I'll pin that at the top of the comments below if you want to like copy and paste from elsewhere or, or write your ideas on that because I do think he has some good ideas there. That would be great, yeah. Because um, I, I one of uh, the things that I learned while writing about these games is that it's really good to have orthogonal strategies. You know, strategies mm -hmm. that where you they have you know, a strategy A has nothing to do with strategy B. <laughs> strategy A is using elemental attacks, and strategy B is using status debuffs. Right? Sure. They have nothing to do with each other, and either one is valid. Yeah. Um, and I think the great battles in RPG history have that for you. Um, yeah. In fact, that there's an entire game where almost every problem is solvable orthogonally, which is. Um, uh, Fallout New Vegas is the, probably the best example of there's not one solution to this. There's probably three or four and they're all valid and they're di totally different from one another. So it would be great to see that they're including that in Final Fantasy VII Remake, um, whereas 13 didn't have that as much. Yeah, in 13, it, you, it's pretty much like staggering is the central goal. If you don't stagger, like you, you, you can't kill bosses, really. Um, especially late game bosses that have like millions of HP or whatever. But um, in this game, uh, the HP never really gets that high. I think the final boss in this game has like 65,000 HP or something. And the way that I approached combat was to be hyper aggressive, try to stagger, you know, as quickly as possible and just unleash my limit breaks, my, uh, you know, my highest damage output abilities all during that phase. But he approached it very differently where he used a lot of blocking and um and anyways if he can share that in the comments just as a, an alternate perspective on this I, I would appreciate that and then people can read that and kind of you know, just as an observation about like stagger mechanics is um i think it kind of ties together with um cinema to a certain extent where if you ever watch like um, a, a fight scene in a in a movie there's a kind of push and pull between the, the characters right where mm -hmm. Um, you want to sort of see the protagonist on the aggressive. You want to see them push a bit and then push back a bit uh, to keep sort of the tension going. And I think, I don't know how conscious this is, right? So there, there are probably two different things that I've observed um, in my work when it comes to how people approach combat design. And uh, on one hand, you have the cynical side of me who's kind of looking at this a little bit uh, the way that I look at a lot of the designs in mobile games, right? where I feel as if the stagger meter is this artificial contrivance in order to uh, elevate a sense of um, sort of a, a positive feedback loop, where it's like, it's very satisfying. Uh, you kind of, you delay the amount of time or ability that you have to actually do anything meaningful to your enemy, right? Which is frustrating. Uh, because you're not really doing anything. You're not seeing the damage bar, right, or their HP bar decrease, right? And then they get into the stagger mode and you start pummeling the shit out of the enemy. And that feels very satisfying. So a cynical part of me feels as if it's kind of like a cheap way to... It's 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 like um, it's like the, the gotcha systems, right, where you get trash things for a long time and you get one good thing and it feels very good, right? And the dopamine keeps coming, right? Uh, and that might be a cynical way of looking at it. And on the other hand, uh, and a more positive way of looking at it is that it's trying to sort of insert that feeling of push and pull to, to generate um, a, a, a sense of kind of ebb and flow of dramatics to the combat, right? But taking a step away from that, not, not thinking about the stagger mechanics at all, um, my thought about combat generally is that it's better to have a combat that is just generally exciting and then wrap it up quickly than to have a long drawn out battle with certain highlights, if that makes sense, right? That might just be a preference thing on my part. 
But this that's why I've always been really engaged with games like Bushido Blade, right? Where it's like uh, you hit the enemy once or twice and they die. You get hit once or twice and you die. And there's just like your stress level is here through the entire yeah. battle. It only lasts like two minutes, but you're like, you're just... <laughs> You, you know, your, your shoulders are here and your controller is here <laughs> and you're just like, damn. And, you know, everybody in the room is just like they're everybody's here and they're uh, super tense. And then it resolves and then you can breathe out and you can move on and you can get those highs. Um, you can get those peaks uh, at, a, at a normal basis. It's one of the things you're just playing the last story, right? I feel like that's a yeah. battle system that's really concise, right? Enemies die quickly. Um, if you do something wrong, if you if you didn't get it when you're fighting a boss, then you die pretty quickly as well, though it's not that hard of a game. And I feel as if that gameplay loop, at least for me personally, I find that more rewarding. So I'm not really a huge fan of uh, whether you want to look at uh, stagger mechanics in a sort of positive light uh, to, to create that ebb and flow of battle or whether you want to be cynical about it. Um, uh, it just doesn't matter to me. I, I just don't like stagger mechanics. I feel as if they they it's not conducive to what I would consider generally a, a an enjoyable combat flow, right? Or but that's you know that's entirely subjective though. So I, I don't usually mess with games that spend time on stagger mechanics. Yeah, I just want to inject one thing, and I want people to take this for what they will, but. Um... The average battle, because I, I charted this, the average battle in Final Fantasy VII original took seven player turns to end. Um, and that that's just using basic attacks, no spells. So seven basic attacks at the appropriate level for a battle would end a random encounter. Not a boss fight. Those tended to go between 23 and, and 40. Um, but, you know, that just gives you a sense of what how combat is different. Now, make of that what you will. Some people like longer combat. Some people like shorter it's a matter of what your artistic goals are, but the difference should be mathematically clear. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. It's funny. It's funny that you actually charted that because Hian and I were talking the other day about doing that, about going back and measuring like the the length of an average battle or something, or even like the length of an average dungeon in the original game and comparing that to what it is in the remake. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I, I actually did my the Final Fantasy VII book, Reverse Design Final Fantasy VII, has detailed um, stats for everything. Um, talking about encounter rates, talking about the size of maps, um, which which uh, dungeons have the largest maps. Um, you know, I have a chart of which quests have the highest number of basic attacks to complete, using that as a sort of a yard, yardstick. Um, that's all in there. Um, and it was game battles were short. Um, yeah. Dungeons were dungeons were played interestingly. If you, um, so, like in Final Fantasy VII original, um, random encounter rate varied by screen size. So if you had a much, much bigger um, dungeon, I think the single biggest one is the Mount Nibble, um, the really long winding path through the mountains. looks kind of like a Chinese painting yeah. um, where you're really, really zoomed out. That screen has a very low encounter rate. So you can actually make tons of progress. The, the goal was not to bog you down with tons of battles or make the dungeon long. The goal was to give you a persuasive sense of place um, and have some judicious battles in between. Now, I, people, some people didn't like the Final Fantasy VII battle system. I won't persuade them to like it. Um, it had it had a different goal, um, but yeah. So the, the pacing was deliberately set up so you would have not that many battles and they'd be quick. And then you get to the interior keeper, and he was the first hard boss of the game. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, that's just well, so, so, 
So, someone would say that maybe the first difficult boss of the game is G Natak, but that, of course, assumes that you don't know just to, you know. X Potion. <laughs> or, yeah. Or is it like. That's strange. Like, you can kill him with, like, a Phoenix down or life, but one of them doesn't work in my memory. I might be wrong here. I think, I think they both work, but it's like they miss a lot. Yeah. Phoenix downs miss okay, like okay. a ton. Okay. Yeah. That's. That's ridiculous, but okay, yeah. But yeah, you have an explosion <laughs> by that point. You can just you can just one shot him. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's let's actually touch on that for a second because this is something Hian and I were also discussing uh, on Discord the other day, right? Like, um, the and and you touched on that a minute ago with the the attempt to make battles feel really exciting and fast paced by turning it into this hybrid of action and like there's huge explosions and tons of effects happening especially with the later the, the later stage magic you know <laughs> fireballs just exploding and freaking just sparks flying everywhere and uh, enemies moving jumping it's it's like very visually exciting in that sense but like the battles are much lengthier in terms of pacing and the original game, people feel like there there are some people, I should say, who will argue that the battle system's so slow. But it's like while you know you have your team standing here, enemies standing here, and they have a little animation while they wait for their ATB to fill up. I think that you had said that the ATB, on average, uh, if you speed up the battle system all the way up, or because you have the the scale for that, right, where you can speed it up to be faster, it's like two point five seconds or something in that range. Something along those lines. It it doesn't even hit three seconds. It's like two point five, two point six ish. I think for your ATB to fill up, you're looking at yeah, thirty seconds, thirty seconds per battle or less. I just based on seven player turns. Yeah. The, the yeah. So yeah, exactly. So like, like, so in terms of your time, right? You're in the original game. You're actually, you know, you're doing more damage with any single attack than you are in the remake, and your ADB bar charges faster than in the remake. So I mean, like, technically, the original, you you move faster than in the actual remake. So like, the complaint that the original combat system is slow is confused, right? Like. Uh, the problem is that I think that you have a lot of players who confuse their vi- uh, visceral response to the gameplay system with uh, they, they don't have like a good vo- vocabulary for what they're talking about, right? So um, they think the remake battle system is more exciting, which is fine, right? That that's okay. Put that to the side. But the reason they think that is because, of course, uh, it's it's um, uh, immediate response in terms of gameplay, which means that you press a button and the character moves, right? So yeah. that closes the gap between what's happening on the screen and the input of the characters, which makes people feel in control, which feels good, right? Um, whilst in the original game, right, you you see a menu, you press attack, and then the character runs over and attacks. So there's a there's a distance between yeah, like a, a disconnect a, to some degree yeah, yeah. You, you you're not you're not playing the character you're commanding the character and yeah. then that's why they call it a command system in japanese right but um, and that puts a lot of people off and that's fine right i uh, people have different tastes but when people say oh the combat system is slow that's like a categorical error right because it's not slow i mean your your ATB bar fills, as I said, on max. Like it doesn't even take three seconds for you to get a turn. In other words, if you're playing this game on active with uh, the battle speed on max, th- it, unless you're just jamming attack, 
you will always have the command menu, uh, the window open. You will always have a turn because it's moving so fast. It's, you're getting turns faster than you can pick commands. So, I mean, uh, you, and that's not the case with the remake, right? You, you literally have to get off like a full combo um, to get your ATB. And, and you uh, most of the enemies, right, there are some like sh scrubs you can probably kill with a single combo. But for the most part, you're going to need an ATB charge to kill off, if not several, to kill off some of those enemies. So uh, by all metrics, right, the original actually objectively has a faster combat system. It just doesn't feel like that, or you don't have the vocabulary to express that in an appropriate manner. So I can think of one, possibly one metric which might favor the remake, which is um, a number of actions per second, if you consider any controller action to be an action, right? Because you're it's sure. steering, right? In Final Fantasy's remake, sure. you have to steer your character. And so you're, having, you're probably having sure. six or seven actions a second where you're having one or two. Sure. So that visceral response, that, that might tell players that they're doing more, even though they're not making progress, but they're doing something. Sure. So yeah, I, I think, but otherwise I agree sure. with you. That's, yeah, so that, that's what I'm kind of talking to, right? So the, what they're describing, it has less to do with the speed or pace of combat, which would generally be identified as, you know, as, as you said, like um, uh, efficient choices, right? Or efficient results over time, right? So you wouldn't... Um, Let's say I had a combat system where I could only do one thing, right? I make, uh, I can, I press a button and a thing happens, right? And the battle concludes in a matter of 30 seconds, right? And then I have a different uh, battle system where I efficiently get to press or make shit happen um, maybe 30 times over the course of a 20 minute battle. You would, you wouldn't say because i did 30 moves it's therefore faster right you would look at the you wouldn't be looking at sort of the the, the amount of things that you're doing over the time you would be looking at um efficient outputs versus the time so uh i'm i'm kind of confused well i'm not really confused like obviously uh, lay people and and normal people with uh, limited vocabulary are going to be confused by this kind of stuff but i mean um yeah, it, 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 there, there are just a, not a whole lot of metrics where it makes sense to say that the remake has a faster combat system. It doesn't have a faster combat system. It has a combat system that feels faster, right? Uh, because you're more in control. And that's, I think that's the central facet here, right? That people should be conscious of. Like, there's a preference to be more in control, but that's just a preference. And that's the thing that kind of bothers me about this conversation because you have purists on one side and and you know people who love the remake on the other and they're having an argument that that seems to be about well i actually see this quite often comments to the extent that well no the remake is better than the original in every conceivable regard right there's a better combat system but yada 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 where you have people on the other side just saying that the remake is trash but i think a lot of this falls down to um sort of what your preference is as a player right uh, as a great example I don't play sports games at all right now. Um, I, I used to when I was younger. I played some football games, like soccer games, right? But I can look at a FIFA game and I can go, well, that's probably a pretty good soccer game, right, or football game, um, and appreciate it. But I'm not going to play it. I don't like it, right? There's nothing to do about that. It's the same thing with Final Fantasy XII. I, I don't like the basic gameplay loop. The Final Fantasy XII and the amount of micromanagement you do in the menu with the Gambit system. That doesn't mean that it's a bad system, right? And um, I, I just think there's a level of conscientiousness just kind of lacking from the conversation where people are like, oh, no, you know, 
this bowel system is so much better because it's so, you know, it's so much more active, right? Uh, or this bowel system is, is so much better because it's, there's so much more thought and stuff like that. But it's, it, it really falls down to kind of what you prefer to do as a player. And I don't know, like, as I said, I prefer my encounters short and sweet. I would rather have a, a, a few amount of inputs over a short amount of time that have a lot of impact than have a lot of inputs over a large amount of time that don't have a lot of impact, which I think is the case with the remake. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that point. This is something I've tried to be clear oh. on, is that when I've talked about like the, the baseline game design philosophy of FF7R being pretty closely tied to FF13s, because the, I mean the director is of the game design is the same on both, um, that's not to say that like that approach or methodology or design is necessarily bad inherently. It's just that I don't appreciate. That's not like what I look for when I'm looking for good dungeon design that I'm into. You know what I mean? I, I shouldn't say good. When I sure. look for yeah. the type of dungeon crawling that I like, it's not Toriyama's dungeon design. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily like inherently wrong or something. But that, that's why I'm having a disconnect, I think, similarly, similarly to you with the Final Fantasy VII Remake is because it's not the same type of game almost in any way. Like, there's no remnant of... Uh, maybe aside from Materia. Maybe aside from Materia, there's almost no remnant of that game's design that exists in this. This feels like an improved, greatly improved in some ways, Final Fantasy XIII than it does like the Final Fantasy VII I grew up playing. And so, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, it's fine. It's very polished in so many ways. And, and there's a reason why tons of people are really digging it. It's, it they, they were very conscientious and, and they, they polished it to an, a pretty insane yeah. degree. I just don't like that style of design, personally. Yeah. So. You know, so same for me. Like I would, I would easily say that. Like, as as much as probably people in your community have a preconceived notion of like how I would feel about this game, uh, I would say that just being detached, right? I would not if I was like a GameSpot reviewer or whatever. I would probably give this game like at least an eight point five or whatever for what sure. it's doing. Um, and I can sit here and say that, right? I say it's it's a fine game. Like if it was just a game, um, it's just not, it's not my type of game and it's not, it doesn't reflect what I loved about the original game. So it's not for me. Yeah. It's not, it's, Sim there's no like ill will in that. Yeah. Same here. I think that like, if I, like you're saying, if I was, uh, writing for some major publication or something, I would probably put my score somewhere in the 7.58 range, you know, somewhere in there. I think it's, it's pretty decent, but you can't look at things in a vacuum like that when we're talking about a game that was so important to me growing up and and the the comparisons are impossible not to not to see especially with a lot of things I've talked about with storytelling I won't repeat those uh those are all in the other podcast but um yeah. anything else uh that you guys want to add to thoughts on the Final Fantasy 7 remake that you maybe didn't have a chance to say last time Pat before we move on yeah I would say that um, in regard to Hian's point um, you probably could release anything for the next one because all anyone will be able to think about for the next one is is Eris going to die or not 
Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's all anyone will think about until they get past it, and then they'll maybe be like, "Well, oh, I have all these old complaints that I've been saving up." That's that's the only thing that's going to be on anyone's mind the entire time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people. There's been a lot of I, I've seen it going either way, where some people strongly believe, and I think even you alluded to this, Beth, that it will it might follow the original story pretty closely. Still, they still think like they're not going to go totally commit to this we've changed destiny and now the whole thing's gonna be different i personally am on the opposite side i would feel like it would be such a waste of everyone's time to have spent this much time having sephiroth say that which is to come doesn't yet exist and eris saying the things that she says and that whole title at the end the unknown journey will continue it's just maybe like like heon was saying earlier uh they will look at the response to those things and then make a decision you know, looking at the polls, looking at the data and say, okay, let's, let's go all in and commit to that. Or maybe we should just put elements of this destiny thing hovering or sprinkled throughout, but let's actually follow the original closer. Maybe they've yet to make that decision, but I would feel like it was such a misstep if their plan the whole time was to just follow the original game, to have tweaked the ending to such a dis- insane degree like that and suggest all of this that's actually, stuff that's actually my substantive like question and a bit of an issue that i have with what they did with the ending obviously i have tons of issues with what they did with the ending but the thing you know what this reminds me of it reminds me of the crossroads that uh lucasfilm and, and disney found themselves at after the last jedi right yes because yes. It's, it's literally entirely analogous because they have a couple of options in front of them and none of them are good, like no matter how you do this. Because if you, if you now just proceed ahead and you just kind of stick to the original narrative, then that's going to look really freaking weird because and, like and just all the people you can just derail everything and all the people who were into that ending and what it suggested will be disappointed to think that what they ended up doing is boring if they walk back on it yeah like like it will feel like oh okay so that was just a cop-out and you were just kind of faking it and this wasn't yeah. like a true subversion and yada 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 and it's gonna get like panned for that right but if you do change everything, we're sitting here thinking, like, but, but what is this? This isn't Final Fantasy VII, right? You're like, okay, now uh, what's going to happen next, right? Maybe they don't even, you know, they get to Juno or whatever. Maybe they don't actually, you know, they get on the cargo ship and it doesn't land in Costa del Sol. It lasts, you know, it lands somewhere else in a new, new town and then they go in a different direction. It's just like, what? <laughs> what is this game, right? What's going on, right? And then, of course, you're going to have a bunch of people be like, damn. I thought I was playing a remake of Final Fantasy VII. What happened with that, right? And like, there's just no way walking away from that ending without. I don't know. Like, if yeah, it it feels like they Ryan Johnson for the Final Fantasy VII remake, and it's just like (laughs) Jesus Christ. Was that clever? Right? I I don't know how they're going to do that. I I can't even begin to theorize. The only thing I will say is that there is one sentiment that has been bothering me for a long time. There's all these people saying, oh, the original game is the bad timeline because of a throwaway line that Red 13 has. Mm-hmm. I hate, the, I, I hate, I don't like this game. I'm not going to say I hate it. I don't like this game, but that's a really bad take. And the reason it's a really bad take is because the reason we think that is because we played the original. Yeah. But here's the clue, right? Red 13 has not played the original Final Fantasy VII. So mm-hmm. he does not know 
that that is the like he, like if if you put yourself in the mind of Red Thirteen for a moment and you just get a vision of like Midgar told like it totally destroyed. Of course, you're gonna think, damn, that's probably not like uh, that's probably not what I like. What we were you know, we don't want that what to we're happen. Hoping for, yeah, right? yeah, right. Looks so, like, like a bad future. His, yeah, like he he's just making a basic commentary on the fact that he's watching like the earth post apocalypse style and he's thinking like damn probably not the best uh, outcome we got to do something about this people right it's not a reflection that there, i don't think there's any subtext there suggesting that they're the the creators of this game are sitting here thinking like the original gaming is the bad timeline and now we're you know we're not going to do that right like and i think that's it, it just it just baffles me. I've seen so many people say it. Like, literally, GameSpot said it. IGN said it. Like, everybody's saying it. And I'm sitting and thinking, like, I don't even like this game, and I don't think that's a good read of this, right? Like, <laughs> a lot of people. Fans are, I mean, people, people, most people interpret criticism when they begin their critical careers as conspiracy theories about the meaning of things. But there's a secret code, yeah. and if we break that code, we'll have access to something. When criticism is really supposed to be about how and why. Um, how did they accomplish this and why did they do it? And then maybe we can understand the game in a deeper way or whatever piece of art we're examining um, in a deeper way by understanding how the effect was accomplished and why. Because generally the effect that you feel the first time you interact with something is the effect the artist wanted, or at least one of them. And you're not going to unlock some secret deeper thing. You just are going to maybe appreciate it, the same effect in a deeper way. Um, so, you know, Squall is not dead. <laughs> uh, this is kind of how I feel about um, people's in, reading the the meta story about the the ghosts representing purist fans, right? Like, I I've been careful in you know I've been on record at least twice now saying that if that's the case, I find that to be very self indulgent on Nomura's part to have made the story about himself fighting against the expectation from fans about making this game. But I'm still not even convinced that that is really what was intended there right like that 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 meta narrative was like he that's exact that's what he wanted people to read from that it, i i could also just see it as it's just destiny ghosts and it just relates to the story's timeline <laughs> not necessarily to the game dev's struggle to break free of the expectation of purist fans who who wanted exactly like the original i don't even know i i cannot say for sure and so i always that caveat there like, like i don't know if that was the intention or not i i i don't want to yeah like on a total different tangent this is something that nobody i feel as if nobody's really complaining about and this is my last complaint about final fantasy 7 remake like uh, it's, it's an okay game don't get me wrong right the the thing here about changing things is that uh okay i'm you know i love the original i wouldn't want tons of changes but here's the thing if you're going to change something i want you to just own the fact that you've changed it right i then i would just want to play the new Final Fantasy VII that you made, it's different, right? Okay. But the thing that bothers me the most about the Final Fantasy VII remake is that it jabs the finger in your eye going, hey, it's different, it's different, right? It's doing the meta thing where it's like, it's not enough that, let's say, Cloud tries to kill Reno or whatever, right? Maybe, like, it, let's say you made an alternate Final Fantasy VII where he did kill Reno, okay, shock, right? Whatever. 
uh, you changed it, right? Own that. The, the thing that bothers me is that there are so many scenes here. I'm, I'm just kind of sitting there looking at the scene and I just want to appreciate the scene for what it is, right? Whether it's faithful or whether it's different. The problem is that the game wants to have its cake and eat it too. So it, it implies that it's going to be different. And then it goes, look, look, it's about to go different. And then it goes, no. And then the ghosts show up and then he pull it back. And the problem is that pulls me out of the storytelling because I don't feel as if I'm just looking at a story. I feel as if I'm looking at, I, I feel as if I'm part of a lab experiment where I'm looking at a like holodeck kind of representation of a story. And then there's a bunch of people in white lab coats on the other side of a window looking at me um, uh, sort of thinking, oh, what's he going to do when it's different? What's he going to do when it's different? <laughs> and I'm like, holy fuck, just leave my brain alone. I just want to <laughs> engage with a story, right? Like when you're, when you're reading Lord of the Rings or you're watching Harry Potter, you're just kind of engaging with the story, right? You're, it's stories in your head. You're just kind of, you know, it's just playing through. It's fine. But Final Fantasy VII Remake keeps reminding you that you're playing a remake, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's not comfortable. Like, I don't want to be reminded that I'm playing a game. You don't have to remind me of that. I just want to play the game. And I think that's actually one of the most frustrating, like people act like that's clever. Like that's a meta, you know, meta commentary. That's real clever. But the, the point of meta commentary, like it's say uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 is a great example of this, how they used marketing uh, to, to sort of fool players into thinking they were going to be Snake. They turned out to be Raiden, right? And that was like a commentary on how perhaps people had grown unhealthily attached to like Snake as a hero, even though Kojima himself is kind of anti-war and wanted to make like a, uh, I don't know, like a deconstruction of like the 90s action hero or whatever, right? Yeah. Anyways, like there was a point to that meta. The, the meta of this thing, I don't know, like, is, is, are they trying to pull like a Kojima thing here by making like a commentary on the state of remakes and, and kind of how people are too attached to remaking stuff? I, I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe there's some genius Kojima, like, <laughs> uh, masterstroke of storytelling, deconstruction, the, the, like, postmodernistic stuff going on here. But ultimately, all I want is just a story. I just want a nice story. I just want to like <laughs> see a story happen with characters interacting and like it has some themes and like everything doesn't have to be you like the the author or whatever like shoving his hand into my brain and going, "Hian, wake the fuck up. This is the matrix." <laughs> like, come on. Leave me alone. I just want to play a game. I'm tired. Right? I got home from work. You don't need to like do that. Come on. Like that that is my biggest complaint. That's my biggest gripe about the Fall Fantasy Seven Remake. It's not that it's different. It's that it keeps telling me that it's different. Mm -hmm. Right? Don't tell me that it's different different. Just be different. Yeah. Right? If you're gonna be different. What are we gonna say, Pat? And the rant. I was yeah, I was gonna say, um, I, I don't think it's a Kojima thing because in every Kojima meta narrative there is an element of laughter, and that is not <laughs> that did not appear here. <laughs> okay, um, I think uh, we've all kind of set our piece on that. Um, I want to transition now to something that I talked about. If for those of you who saw, I was on uh, 
Lore Runner's stream this week. He did a Final Fantasy VII remake discussion. And he invited me on. Um, for those of you who didn't uh, didn't see that, I'm going to be going over some of the, I guess, the thesis of um, probably a, a really controversial point that you'll have to hang with me on for a second. It'll sound very hyperbolic at first, but if you hang with me, I'll explain it, and then I'll let these guys kind of dive into the details a little bit more. But um, as I was thinking about this more and more, we've been we did a podcast about a month ago or whatever where we were trying to kind of feel out like what is the spirit of Final Fantasy. And a lot of my points that I made there, I kind of hold to, but there were some other points, some by Heon, some by others in the comments that I read. I was like, oh yeah, I really like that too. That adds to it. Plus my now almost decade long worth of creating Final Fantasy retrospectives and reading lots of interviews and trying to get into the heads of the developers of those games has kind of culminated in this thought. And like I said, you're prob a lot of you will probably be like so against this when I first say it, but I'm going to read some quotes and I'm going to build a case for this. So just hang in there with me. I feel like the Final Fantasy VII Remake and retroactively the Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy and the compilation of Final Fantasy VII and all the media mix material of Final Fantasy XV, all of it, that basically since 2003, is expressly anti-Final Final Fantasy. Like, my position is that it goes totally against the spirit of Final Fantasy. Okay, so here's why. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump into a quote here from Hironobu Sakaguchi. And one thing I want to say before doing this too is that Final Fantasy is, even though he was the creator, obviously Final Fantasy is owned and belongs to Square Enix. It does not belong to him, right? But he was still the one who created it. He was the one who whose methodology sort of like formed what the spirit, what the essence of this uh, of what this series was through from 1987 through 2001 ish. And then he was already making plans to kind of leave the company. He was there for a couple more years, but he was making plans. He had already registered Miss Walker. Like he was already one foot out the door after final fantasy 10 released basically. So, uh, in this interview, uh, talking about final fantasy one, he says, I must pull this over here. Way back then, the spirit was that we, were, we weren't making a product, but a creation. It was putting our whole soul into the production, pouring all of your ideas into the game, even if they crop up during development, not saving anything for the sequel. So that's quote number one. In another quote, which comes off of the DVD, uh, the DVD commentary on Final Fantasy X, I think, like a special features, he says this. When asked, like, what does he consider Final Fantasy to be? He says, we give it our all and expend all of our skills and energy until we cannot go any further. This is what I consider to be the Final Fantasy. The stories and characters change each time. This is because stories tend to limit a world and I think by changing these aspects and creating new material for each title, we try to show our full potential. In a way, you can say that it serves as a type of challenge for us. Now, I believe that last part, 
serving as a challenge for us. I think that that's kind of what Hajime Tabata was speaking to when he was trying to resolve this Final Fantasy disease problem, as he calls it, where the developers internally at Square could not agree on what Final Fantasy was. This even goes back to Final Fantasy XIII's development because a lot of the developers did not have a, a vision they were not on the same page. That was like a big problem and why the development of that game took so long. Because they did not they did not agree about how this game should be made to begin with. We're talking about structure. We're talking about formula. We're talking about methodology, approach. Everyone had a different idea of how that should be done. Right? So that being said, here's another quote from Sakaguchi. This came from an from an interview uh I can't remember. I'd have to look up exactly which publication. It was... I can't remember, so I'm not going to even try to attempt to say who it is. But I, I, I could pull it up later. What were you going to say, Hion? Maybe it's Forbes. Uh, Forbes might be the one. I think that might be it. This one says, I don't like sequels. I hate them. That's why every single Final Fantasy had a new cast of characters, a brand new story, and a different system. Every single game that we make we are going to give it our all, and then we finish it. We'll end it in such a way that there is no to-be-continued checklist. That one for me is huge. That's like a scathing hatred of sequels. The idea is approaching this game as if I will never make a video game again. There's, there's two, two versions of why they chose the name Final Fantasy that Hironobu Sakaguchi has shared in interviews. One of them, which I... I hold to still is that he was so like disenfranchised. So like done with all of the failures that they had attempted at square to make a hit video game that he was, this last project was his last attempt. And if it, if it didn't go anywhere, he was going to go back to college. Like he was going to go back and, and do engineering. Like he, he was not interested in continuing with video games if this project didn't go anywhere. So for him personally, this was his final fantasy, right? And so he approached it as if he would never make a video game again after this. He didn't save anything for later. Every idea that he thought was great, he put every ounce of energy and soul and passion into this last project. And that became part of the identity of what Final Fantasy was. And that was part of his approach in every game that followed after that. We're not making we're not going to turn this into something that can become franchised in the sense of this particular creation. This one is going to be standalone. And we're going to put everything into this with no thought or regard for what we could do with it later. We're going to put it all into this one. On top of that, uh, in another interview, and this is where I, I'm really interested to get your guys' ideas on this as game designers. He talks about his, that he, the fact that he has a formula for games that he makes. And his quote is, I have a formula from the past 25 years of experience in the industry, an RPG formula, which is a turn-based orthodox JRPG. And I think it's, I think it's fairly standard to say that you know, an individual creator has their unique approach to what they make. They have their ideas, their outline, their formula for what they, how they do what they do. I mean, I, I have this for my retrospectives that I put on my YouTube channel. I have a formula. If you watch those, they all kind of follow a similar sort of structure or outline, right? Um, I, I, my 
opening paragraphs are pretty similar in terms of how they build the thesis. And then I move into the game design side of it. And then I move into, you know, they, they move in a similar way. I have a formula, even if I've never written down what that formula is, I have an approach to how I make what I make. That was also true of Sakaguchi. And on top of that, he had this idea about what Final Fantasy was, which was, I'm approaching this as if this is the last game I'll ever make, and I'm never going to turn this into a franchise. He was totally, or this particular world in story into franchise. Obviously, Final Fantasy is a franchise, but he's not going to turn Final Fantasy VII into a franchise. He's not going to turn Final Fantasy VI into a franchise, right? It's a standalone thing. So, Yoichi Wada, who became the president of Square Enix post the merger, uh, he was originally the COO in the upper echelon of the executive branch of the company. Hironobu Sakaguchi was the executive vice president, and they came to a head on this particular issue. Sakaguchi said, I don't want to do sequels. Artistically, I'm against that. Yoichi Wada said, from a business standpoint, that makes no sense. We just spent all of this time and money and effort creating an engine, creating assets. Why are we not using them again for quick turnaround in order to maximize profits? From a business perspective, purely business perspective, from someone who's not an artist, I totally understand that point of view. Also, as somebody who is a creator, I understand Sakaguchi's point of view very clearly. <laughs> but what happened is, is that unfortunately, with the failure of Spirits Within, Sakaguchi fell out of favor within the company and with its shareholders and was forced to kind of step down. Everyone sort of leaned in Yuichi Wada's direction and favored him. He became the president, and then his mindset became essentially the identity of Final Fantasy moving forward. They started immediately, as soon as Sakaguchi walked out the door, with Final Fantasy X-2 and the compilation of Final Fantasy VII. And they shoehorned this weird connection between Final Fantasy X's world and Final Fantasy VII's world, where Shinra... <laughs> In Final Fantasy X-2 ended up founding the actual Shin, and then now they have a an Easter egg for that in Final Fantasy VII Remake, where you see Shinra in a photograph there in the Shinra building. Um, they 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 turned Final Fantasy XIII into a trilogy. You just they have a million Kingdom Hearts sequels. Like you see how Yoichi Wada's vision for how the business model should be run took over completely. And all new people stepped into directorial roles who ha before had been under Sakaguchi. And they brought their baseline structure, their approach, their methodology, their game design philosophy. And that became now the identity of Final Fantasy. But the thing is, is that all of them have a kind of a different approach. <laughs> they all have a, like a Toriyama game feels really different from a Tabata game. Like Final Fantasy 15 and 13 feel nothing alike. And so the, the, the identity of Final Fantasy has become confused because you don't have that original creator's structure, vision, philosophy guiding it from the top down. And so that is why the entire concept, not only of turning this into a multiple game structure with Final Fantasy VII Remake, but in essence, honestly, turning it into a sequel to Final Fantasy VII. It's not actually retelling Final Fantasy VII's story. It's a sequel to that story. You have to have a familiarity with Final Fantasy VII, the original game, to even understand like how that is true here, right? Like it's, they're breaking that timeline and opening up to do essentially whatever they want with that story, like a rewrite of it in a new alternate timeline kind of a deal. So 
while I I respect the position that people will have to say, I find that to be interesting, like more interesting, say, than just revisiting a story I've already seen before. And they're excited to see where it goes. And they're like, well, this this is now open to, you know, invoke some new surprises and take the story in a direction I'm not expecting. And I, I'm looking forward to that. Totally respect that. I am against the premise because it feels like it's antithetical to the original essence or spirit of this series that I fell in love with. And this is kind of where I've arrived. And this is the last point I'm going to make on this. I'll turn it over. I always thought that like Final Fantasy was, you know, just the brand, the name, like that was something that I had fallen in love with as a kid. But I realized that that wasn't it. What I fell in love with was Hironobu Sakaguchi's design philosophy, his ideas, his approach, the way that he makes games. That is a structure that I find really engaging, um, really well-paced, really fun to play. And I, I disagree a lot with the new guys in there. I don't, I don't hate everything about Nomura's approach, but there's a lot about it I disagree with. I don't hate everything Toriyama does, but I even more disagree with a lot of his design structure. I just, I'm not into how he builds a game from the ground up. And the same was true of Tabata. So these are people that have a different philosophy to what makes a fun game than I do. So I'm not like resonating with new Final Fantasy games like the old, but I have resonated with The Last Story and other games that uh, Sakaguchi has continued to make since then. And I feel the spirit kind of there in games like Lost Odyssey way more than I do in Final Fantasy today. So that's what I mean when I say that Final Fantasy VII Remake, in a sense, is anti-Final Fantasy. I want to turn, that, to turn this over to you guys to bounce, what, uh, bounce off of you what you think about that, but also to dig into the formula a little bit of Sakaguchi because I think... I intuitively understand or feel his formula, but may not be able to articulate it necessarily. And I think you guys as game designers can probably do that better than me. So why don't we start with Pat? What, do you, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, on that? We, we can start with me. Um, I have nine years of, of, of hard labor of research uh, that goes <laughs> into answering exactly this question. And yeah. uh, to a larger degree, um, I spent uh, you know, my entire life from age nine when I played Secret of Mana the first time, trying to answer the question of why are Squaresoft RPGs um, like the way they are? So uh, that's going to require everyone to get a drink of water and go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'm going to try to keep it as brief as possible. But, you know, nine years of research is you don't you don't summarize and, and even more, you know, have, have been to Japan and everything for the whole purpose of trying to answer that question. Even the TLDR is going to be a little bit long. So I do want to ask if he wants to say something not career spanning <laughs> first, that would be fine. No, I think I'm going to leave it to you. It'll be okay. more interesting for me to get in on it later. I've got time. All right, everybody get a comfortable chair. Um, <laughs> so there's a few things to unpack about Sakaguchi's statements. Um, the first one is there's a little bit of cryptamnesia. Cryptamnesia means that you are forgetting that someone else had an influence on you. Sure. Um, you, you attribute it to yourself because you were there, you were part of the process and you just think that's right. It's the, the famous, um, example is, um, uh, Dane Cook absorbing one of Louis CK's jokes, right? That's the example that people give on the internet. 
Um, even though it's a joke that like 17 comedians have told. Um, but you, you think you were there, uh, you, you think it was your idea, you think you were responsible for everything, but really it was actually the result of many people's ideas and input and a process. And it's that historical process of coming from 1987 or really um, 1977 um, to the present that we're, I'm gonna look at um, in terms of how did we get to Final Fantasy? Because there is a very trackable historical lineage for Final Fantasy and it explains a lot of why it is the way it is and why games that have come after it are not the same. Um, everything has to evolve. So you know, that's, I think Final Fantasy could never continue the exact way it was because everything has to change. But it sort of all begins at the Big Bang. Actually, I wanna mention one more thing. Um, not the Big Bang of the universe, but the Big Bang of Dungeons and Dragons. We'll get back to that. Um, the other thing is like when Sakaguchi talks about putting all of his might and all of his will and all of her skill, um, I want other people in the West to understand that there is a certain amount of the Gone Body Moss ethos um, in that, in that, you know, um, Japanese companies will often say things, you know, high, what we consider highly dramatic statements um, about putting all of, you know, their sweat and tears and everything into a, a product. Um, and that's just the ethos of corporate Japan. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean they don't, they don't do it. It just means that that's just a thing that they would say in a ritual way. Um, although I do believe that Sakaguchi really meant it. Um, but people hear that a lot. So it's, it's not unique. That's, I think that's the most important thing. Um, but then, yeah, so let's get back to RPG history. Um, we'll skip ahead to, um, 1977, which is, um, the wide publication of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, this event uh, encircled the RPG space so much that RPG design history has been shaped by it ever since. And, and every RPG that exists is essentially, in a way, a reaction to D&D. The problem was that D&D was so staggeringly complete, it did almost everything that an RPG can do. Um, any idea you think of, and it's being like, oh, a design idea that's new in RPGs, right? Um, fast travel, procedurally generated items, procedurally generated maps, um, you know, anything like that, that all existed in a table written by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. And, and in fact, probably lots of people. I even interviewed designers who were there and said they suggested something and Gygax took credit. He's famous for that. Um, and that's something that I'm talking about Sakaguchi doing too. Um, but by 1980 or 81, when AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons comes out, I would say this is this is a ballpark figure because it's hard to track um, and there's debates over this is that 80% of the ideas, maybe more of, of game, game design ideas that could go into an RPG existed already. Uh, almost everything that could be done was done. Um, like it's just you can if you want to go into this, I, I, you know, the Final Fantasy VII book has a whole history of how many ideas there were and, and how how thorough Dungeons Dragon was. In fact, um, this part of the book is available free on my website, so you don't even have to buy it. Uh, I track the whole history just at, at thegamedesignforum.com if you really want to get into the, the weeds. The short version is um, computer designers and, and console, console game designers, when they tried to start making RPGs on um, digital uh, devices, they had the problem of, first of all, no digital device could do what Dungeons & Dragons did. Dungeons & Dragons systematized the human imagination um, for adventures, right? So, and, and no computer... Will, has done that, and probably no computer in the near future will. We're, you, it's hard, difficult to imagine a computer that can can replicate the human imagination. Computers and, and brains are different. Um, and but the other problem was that 
even if you were to make a, a tabletop RPG that in which the human imagination was the primary uh, engine, um, Dungeons and Dragons had done so much that you had, in order to seem different, you had to do, uh, you had to employ uh, some clever strategies. And so these strategies break down into three different strategies. Um, I won't cover uh, the, the, the first two, but the third one is the one we're interested in. But the first one is simplification. You make D&D, but you simplify things. So basically you're trying to do as much of what D&D does as you can. Um, Ultima is a good example. It doesn't do things the exact way D&D does because it needs to simplify them, but it tries to do as many of them as it can. And therefore you end up with like a, a D Ultima one is like five to 10 hours long, but it's sort of like a five to 10 hour mini epic where everything's really condensed and sort of on fast forward. Um, the other strategy, the second strategy is combination. You take RPGs and you combine them with action. Action games is the biggest one. Um, Dragon Slayer was one of the first of those. Um, um, so you have uh, you have um, you know all the games that combine RPGs with other things. Uh, action games, uh, strategy games. Even though RPGs really started as strategy games, but we mean something different here. Um, simulation build games like say Act Racer. Um, even things like Minecraft are a combination of um, RPGs elements with um, a totally different genre. So that makes your RPG feel fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, yeah, it's not as silent as you think it is. Um, <laughs> he's, he's <all> <laughs> but uh, so um, that, you know, if you combine RPGs with another genre, your, your game feels fresh. It doesn't feel like Dungeons and Dragons, even if it literally is Dungeons and Dragons. If you're swinging the sword, which you essentially are in, say, Morrowind, um, it feels different. It's just a different feel, and you, you, your game feels fresh, and you can do artistically novel things. Um, but it's the third strategy that we really want to focus on, which is specialization. Um, and a specialization is saying, the strategy is saying, I cannot do what Dungeons & Dragons does, so I will not try. I will try to do one very small part of the Dungeons & Dragons formula and focus on that entirely and get rid of everything else and that will be my artistic vision. And the best example of that, um, aside from Final Fantasy, is roguelikes. Um, in a roguelike, you they, they get rid of plot, characters, towns, um, you know, surface exploration, NPCs. You don't have any of that stuff because the whole point of a roguelike is to get in a dungeon, fight monsters, loot chests, find secrets, and that's it. That's all you do. If you die, you start over, but you're back in the dungeon right away. So the core loop is really fast. Um, and because of that, you, you get, um, this, this type of game that is, um, you know, really specialized for a niche audience. That niche audience has obviously grown a lot, uh, over the years, but, you know, roguelikes, really pure roguelikes are meant for a specific kind of person. Now I'm going to give a little preview and I'm, I'm trying to go as fast as possible over a lot of material, but, um, sure. what we'll see is that Final Fantasy is a roguelike essentially not not literally a roguelike but it is a specialization like roguelikes were that somehow became for everyone it's a niche game that became for the world that became popular for everyone in the world yeah. um and that's the magic of what final fantasy is and explains a lot of the spirit so the first four final fantasies depending on how you look at them um were simplification style games they were like dungeons and dragons as much as they could be um, with a Nintendo game, right? In, these are all on Nintendo. Um, I guess four is on SNES, but um, even still, the technology is even more limited than the PCs of the day, and 
you couldn't do a lot of what Dungeons and Dragons does. But in Final Fantasy IV, um, in the game design documents, which are now published in the uh, Final Fantasy Ultimania archive, there is a mission statement written by probably by Sakaguchi and Tokita, Takashi Tokita, Tokita the director, um, that says we want to change the way RPGs are made. We want to make the player feel like a protagonist in a movie. Hmm. Um, and so here's a good example of, of the crypt amnesia is that Takashi Tokita had a really huge influence on Final Fantasy IV. So to say that Sakaguchi thought of this all by himself, um, probably not true. Uh, sure. We know that Tokita had a big influence on that. So, but I, I don't think that Tokita was is, would be upset about this because they were all there doing it together. They can just all claim credit and all be right. Um, that that's fine. They all were. They they all do deserve credit. Um, but Final Fantasy IV had some certain design problems in that it wanted to be a new kind of RPG, right? It, if you want to make a movie player feel like a movie protagonist, you need a linear story because movie yeah. protagonists don't go on side quests. Yeah. They don't. They don't do that. Um, and linear, you know, they don't see them manage their inventory, right? That's not what um, movie protagonists do. You skip to the interesting parts of a movie unless you're watching, I don't know, French Impressionist cinema or something like that. But you always skip to the interesting parts. And Final Fantasy IV absolutely tried to do that. The script was originally like 75% longer um, than the game script, um, mostly because of memory constraints. They had to cut it. But they also just said, well, we'll keep all the events in there. We're just going to rapidly plow through everything in the game. Um, and it'll feel really compelling and, and very fast paced. And it did. And Final Fantasy IV was like the first really big uh, hit. Um, well, not first really big hit. Final Fantasy I was a hit. But Final Fantasy IV was a bigger hit than any of the other games to that point. Um, but there was another problem is that uh, movies need lots of characters, most of them anyway, especially big adventure tales. So movies need lots of characters, and there are lots of characters in Final Fantasy IV, but because the, the, this is an RPG, every character had to have a character class. Um, so you had to have mages and rogues and bards and all of those things. And because characters are coming in and out of the party to tell a story, um, the problem that arises is that your character composition of your your party changes a lot. And sometimes Final Fantasy IV is a lot harder than other times, even though it's a beatable game. But sometimes it's much harder at one point than it is at another point, just because of who's in your party for storytelling reasons. The character classes became a liability. And so what you see over the next um, two games, Final Fantasy V and Final Fantasy VI, is that they, Square begins to gradually release itself from character class obligations. So you start to see um, Final Fantasy V, you can mix in, anyone can be any character class, and you can mix and match abilities. We know that this is um, something that Sakaguchi thought up in the middle of the process because he's given an interview in which he famously um, said, oh, I gave everyone a really big headache because I said, why don't we allow them to mix and match and change classes anytime? Um, but also what he was doing was allowing himself to tell a story where Anybody, any, you know, and those characters could be anything. You don't have to worry about one of them being gone because if you, you lose your knight, say Ferris leaves the party, you could just replace them with another knight, right? So you can actually accomplish the pyramid quest in, in um, the third world because you could change your, your, your party composition to be whatever you need it to be right then and there. Um, so you can continue telling the story of, oh, we only have half the party right now or two thirds of the, or three quarters of the party because somebody else is off, you know, doing a new life that she's chosen for herself. So you get the storytelling goals, but you also get your tactical goals accomplished by letting anyone be anything. You've, you've ditched the old, the old RPG dynamic that you inherited from Dungeons and Dragons. Final Fantasy VI comes along, and the, the differences between character classes almost go away entirely. Um, you know, Terra, uh, Celeste, and, are, are knights, 
Um, they they can use swords and heavy armor, but they are also amazing magic magic users. Um, Sabin the monk can use magic really well. Um, the assassins can use them. You know, uh, the the mimic can use magic. Uh, the little painter can use magic. Everybody can use magic well, and all of their best armor is roughly equivalent. The the snow muffler, the best uh, light armor in the game, is roughly equivalent to the Genji armor. It has some advantages over the Genji armor, in fact. Um, and that was by design. They wanted you to be able to bring, of your 14 characters, you wanted, they wanted you to be able to use any four of them as your main party, because that is what a movie would be like, right? If you were telling a story, if the goal is to tell a, a story about a lot of characters, you need to be able to pick whichever ones you want to tell the story that you want to tell or see it the way you want to see it. Um, but that means you had to get rid of a lot more things. So all of those classic balance decisions that existed in in, in our old school RPGs, PC RPGs and the tabletop had to go. They had to be thrown away. Um, and then, of course, you see in Final Fantasy VII that those things are are really gone. There's one character with a job class in Final Fantasy VII, Aerith. Uh, Aerith, sorry. I have too, many, too much uh, time using the literal text. Uh, it makes me always say Aerith and Aerith. Um, so Aerith is the only cast. She's a, she's, a, she's a healer. She starts in the back row. She has a really low attack stat. Everybody else is within 10% of one another, statistically, um, in terms of damage they can output, um, in terms of weapon power and all that. There's no reason to use Barrett or Red 13 or Yuffie over one another unless you you basically like them. I mean, Barrett's limit breaks are a little bit more optimized. Sid's limit breaks are a little bit more optimized if you really want to crush some endgame bosses. But in terms of the main quest, there's no reason why you shouldn't use one character over another. They're all roughly equal. Cloud is stronger than everybody, but you have to use him anyway, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, you can you can use whoever you want because the point of Final Fantasy VII is not to have a, a tactically complex game, the point of Final Fantasy VII. And now by this point, Final Fantasies in general is to be able to bring whoever you want for plot and character reasons. And that for me, it, and Final Fantasy VII is essentially the peak of this, but that for me is the spirit of Final Fantasy is that we are going to sacrifice certain parts of the orthodox RPG formula in order to achieve our artistic goal of telling a movie-like story. And uh, they also threw away a certain other things, right? Um, in Ultima, you get to make meaningful decisions about the narrative. You get to decide between factions and things like that. And that's true of things like Baldur's Gate, which was roughly contemporary to um, Final Fantasy VII. You get to make m- meaningful decisions in the narrative. You can be good or evil. You can you can decide to go at this place or not go there. Um, Final Fantasy has completely abandoned that. Originally, they abandoned it because they couldn't. But then later on, they abandoned it because they didn't want to. They didn't want to have that kind of narrative choice. So... Um, JRPGs, but Final Fantasy uh, in particular became this game where you don't get to choose a lot in the narrative. Um, you don't get to have character class compositions, or if you do, you can swap them between characters really easily using materia. Um, you don't get to um, have moral choices uh, in, in, the, in the, the really large sense. And the story is told to you by nothing less than an unreliable narrator, right? Cloud lies to the player. Imagine having... A, a game like Baldur's Gate or a tabletop. Imagine how would you even have a tabletop game where your character lies to you? Would that even be possible? I can't. I can't <laughs> think of a way. Right? Yeah. It's uh, your, your DM would have to playing like, the like, character, and then you're right, lying to yourself. Right. Yeah. Like your DM would have to microdose you with like LSD or something. It would have <laughs> to be. It would have to do something really fundamental about the RPG would change. So that should tell you everything you really need to know about Final Fantasy is that they subverted the RPG formula very, very hard. Um, and the craziest thing though, is that as they were doing that, as they were becoming a specialization type RPG or the sort of the pinnacle of how specialized they were going to get, they reached the apex of their popularity. 
no game has ever been as successful relative to its market as Final Fantasy VII for, for Square or Square Enix. Um, it's just this massive phenomenon. So they sell 10 million copies in a time where, well, a lot of people don't even play RPGs, of course, because the PC RPG was sort of on the way out at the time. It came back with a vengeance, but um, that whole cycle of, of Final, Final Fantasy became this really idiosyncratic type of RPG and became popular worldwide is astonishing from a historical perspective. But it does really define why so many people see the ethos of Final Fantasy as being different then from what it is now. Because now we have something, I would say, different. Uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake is digressive. It's not, it doesn't move as fast. Um, there's lots of side quests. Movie protagonists don't go on side quests, but Cloud does. And Cloud, if you, you know, interestingly, he, he complains about it. He's like, do I do this? Doom rats? You know, like, uh, there's finding cats and things like that. You know, they've, they've essentially circled back. They've said, okay, we're going to reincorporate things from the RPG formula as it existed traditionally into Final Fantasy. And if I had to make a case for why something, you know, why, why we feel, you know, people who were original fans of it in a big way in the beginning, um, why we feel that the, the voice of the series has changed, it is because it has drifted back towards its ancestor, Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. It's not the only thing it's reincorporated, though, because, like, no. uh, yeah, I've been, <clears throat> you know, uh, just for my own sake, I've been going through the script of Final Fantasy VII uh, for my own kind of enjoyment and my own little retranslation patch that I'm making for the uh, PlayStation version of the game. And, uh, for instance, a lot of people are really impressed with Jesse's... Um, more like pronounced personality in the remake. <clears throat> and one thing that was very surprising for me, or not, not necessarily very surprising, but kind of eye-opening, was seeing exactly how much dialogue that was cut from Jesse in the original game. I mean, I'm going through here looking at like the, the, the these are on, still on the disc, mind you, right? So they're not, they're not cut for like uh, size constraints or, oh, we, we just couldn't have more dialogue because like that wouldn't have worked. Right. right? Because dialogue, that, that would have been a constraint on like the NES or something, but not. Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's not, it's not an, it's not a constraint when you have like uh, three discs with 700 megabytes, right? It's a constraint when you have a cartridge that can only hold eight megabytes, but it's like, uh, it's not really a constraint in this regard. Right. And it's still there on the disc, but it's not, it's not in the game for some reason, right? And a, uh, a lot of people are really hyped, you know, uh, Jesse's the new waifu, right? Everybody loves her. And it's like a lot of the, the flirty dialogue and stuff that you see in the remake uh, is essentially just tiny rewrites of this cut dialogue that's already on the disc. Like she had those lines, but they took them out for some reason, right? Editorial reasons, I, I don't know. I can't read mine, so I don't know why they took them out. But they took them out, right? And now they've made the choice to put them back in. So there's a lot of, like, I don't know. Like, does this reflect, uh, you know, I don't know what that reflects, but. Yeah, it, 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 it definitely more. suggests that it's more of an editorial choice than yeah. it was a limitation <clears throat> issue. I have yeah. a guess. I mean, so probably Sakaguchi playtested. He's, he's famous for playtesting his games. To yeah. the last second, and even meddling in everything, he you know he he showed up yeah. late to the um to the press conference for um 
for uh, Lost Odyssey because he said he was at, up late that previous night editing sound effects. Um, he gave that excuse to everybody. Although it is, you know, you begin a Japanese speech with an excuse and an apology. That's culturally different. But um, we know that he meddles. Um, he, it was good. It worked. You know, it was great. And I probably, my, my, my most educated guess is that he played the game, played test of the game, said this is too slow. He has stopwatch. He's just looking at his watch gun. Sorry, this is too slow. We're going to cut some of this dialogue. And they just cut it at the end. Um, but now that he's gone, the person who wrote all that dialogue, Kazushige Nojima, is still there, right? Yeah. So in ter- terms of changing party composition, well, <laughs> you know, the, the wizard left, but the uh, the bard is still there. Um, and he's, he's got a lot of lines to sing. <laughs> um, and he's singing. You brought him on to sing. He does one thing. Kazushige Nojima does one thing, and that's sing. Um, you know, but... The, 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 Sakaguchi is more of the palate and he has multi-class role. He, he, he's like, I can only do a little of everything. So we're going to cut down on the lines. We're going to cut down on the battles. We're going to cut down on the difficulty. And we're going to have this game that's for, that somehow is going to be for everybody. I mean, making a game that reaches everybody is a miracle at the, at the best of times, but he did it. That's actually, that's a little interesting insight here. Um, you can use the way backwards machine as that's what, uh, I think that's what it's called. The website. For, like that- watching. Yeah. Yeah, it, it like it. Um, what is it called? Fetch. I just lost the word. It, it... way backwards. It's the way back machine, and it's an yeah. internet archive. Yeah, archive. It yeah, archives. Yeah, yeah. That's the word. Archives old stuff on the internet that that, that yeah. the websites aren't there anymore. That's what it does. That's its purpose. And, and Sakaguchi used to write a blog in English on his Mistwalker site, right? Where he. Um, uh, it was funny because like uh, one of my Discord users uh, sent me the the link to that. I hadn't wa- I had completely like he said he he it brings back memories right, and I was like oh I've totally forgotten about this because it's been so many years. And he had a blog post in English where he posted um, his initial script for uh, for the introductory part of uh, Final Fantasy IX. And uh, in English, where it's like, you know, he has his commentaries, he's jotted everything down, and it's all there, right? It's from his old hard drive, and everything he wrote for, like, the introductionary part of Final Fantasy IX. And it's uh, it's pretty insightful. It's pretty, like, you, you can look at that, and you're just like, okay, yeah, so the, this, is, this is pretty... <laughs> You know, it's it's everything. It's literally everything, right? And he has it all on this hard drive. And it's like, he isn't... Cr- like, I was looking through Moby Games because they keep archives of all... Uh, the, it's a really nice site for following developers because they do... They take um, credit lists from different games and they cross-reference them. So you can click on different designers and, you know, immediately see all the games they worked on and different roles they worked at and stuff like that. Um and I was going through that, looking for like who's the writer of this game, right? And the, the, uh, I don't think I I couldn't find like a specific like script writer for Final Fantasy IX. Um, and you had multiple uh, sort of event scene directors and stuff like that. But it's clear that he wrote all uh, like pretty much all of it. They they changed some minor details and stuff like that. And then he had like annotations with like we're well, gonna have a battle here. It's gonna like not going to be a long battle, right? You know, uh, his notes like, are all it, there. Yeah. Yeah. It's all there. And it's, it's pretty apparent. You're looking at that. It's, there's just no way that this guy would take, like, I don't think he, we, we know that he took a hands-off approach on eight because he was busy with the spirits within, but there's just no way that this guy 
wrote all that crap. It was uh, sitting there, and like when they were working off all of IC7, he was just like, oh, you know, yeah, no interest in this. Like, just do your thing, write your yeah. script, right? It, when, when, you, when you pick Hironobu Sakaguchi up in your car, he asks you to, if he can drive. That's, <laughs> yeah. That, that's he, the sort of person he is. There, there are a lot of, of, of guys who worked under him who described him as a tough boss. And this is something that I've seen more recently, like kind of just, I don't know, maybe an ignorant or a naive sort of like idea about what Sakaguchi's role was post five, because they just look at the director credit. And they say, oh, but Final Fantasy VII was directed by Kitase. And and that Sakaguchi gets all this credit when he wasn't even really like that involved. But it's like, you guys don't understand how intimately, crazily involved he was as a in the producer credit. Like, yeah. he's a producer on seven. He's an executive producer on eight, because that's the one where he had to step back because he was doing the movie. But he's back in the producer-writer role for nine. Right. There's a really inappropriate comparison I can make, and I don't want to say that morally these two people are equivalent, but in jo after 1936, Joseph Stalin didn't have an official position in the Soviet government. Does that mean he wasn't doing anything? <laughs> sure. Oh, no. It's, it's, <laughs> no. Uh, the, the moral equivalent of that, though, is Sakaguchi, who Sakaguchi had power. When you have power, you don't need a title. Yeah. When you're the series yeah. creator, and when the, the, the I mean, it, I think it's a testament to how much the executives at Square trusted him that they let him write a movie, which they should never, ever, 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 ever have done without seeing the script first, which I don't think they did, or having someone who's a professional screenwriter come in and audit this thing. Um, but they trusted him. He was just the golden boy at that time, so he didn't need credits when he was the guy. Uh, Heon, you, you, I thought you were about to step in there, but uh, I think I thought you were oh. telling me when I had talked about Spirits Within that there was actually a, um, some American... Yeah, like, on uh, that, right? I, I was doing a lot of research on that recently. Apparently, okay. that project was a nightmare. And it was a nightmare for multiple reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is that it was a cross-Japanese-American uh, production in Hawaii. And apparently, the scriptwriter was actually an American Hollywood screenwriter. But he was, uh, if you look him up, he has not written any particularly good movies so there's like the there's sakaguchi writing the original script and then it's him handing it off to like this b-roll uh, hollywood writer who's then tasked to like do something with that apparently and then there uh, one of the biggest reasons apparently that everything just went sour is because of the tech problems like Almost all the tech that they used from for, for that movie became really useful for later game development, which was great. So they actually, it was actually a lot of like um, sort of underlying sort of good outcomes from that movie, despite its monetary monetary loss in terms of the tech and the experience that they accrued. But at the time, it was just a hellscape of people not being able to communicate between the languages, like between Japanese and English and working with new software that they had no clue how to use. And uh, just uh, like uh, th there was a huge emphasis on wanting, uh, I, I might be getting this wrong. There was an emphasis they wanted to use mocap, but then they had a bunch of animators who didn't want to work with mocap data. They didn't like that. They wanted to animate it. By hand. Uh, 
by hand. And then there was like this huge conflict between uh, like the the, mo the so the people who wanted mocap and the people who wanted to animate it by hand and just everything just it it was just a trash fire on right. almost every single level production wise. And, and Sakaguchi had amazing soft skills for dealing with that in a game development project, right? Um, he was one of the best. People yeah. said he was an amazing manager, even if he was very tough. He he was very good yeah. at organizing a game development project. That, uh, you know, a, a, a movie studio project is not like that. And uh, there is yeah. no screenwriter in the world who's going to be like, who's going to have, you know, who's going to accept from you the input that you give them uh, that at the same way that someone on your, your event planning staff in a game would. They're not going to accept it yeah. uncritically or, or just make minor alterations or understand your voice. They're just not. There's no way that was going to work. So yeah. that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I don't think so. I'm not trying to impugn Sakaguchi's talents as a storyteller. I just sure. think that he he was perfectly suited to the medium he arrived in. Yeah. It was yeah. great. I, I think RPGs, um, you know, Xenogears, I, like, for is a great example. Like Xenogears, I don't think could have existed as an anime or a comic book or a movie or anything, a TV series, because that sense of like those fights when you fight against Groth and things like the, he kicks your ass and you feel it because you yeah. see you have a you know a systematized way of seeing how powerful he is and then you gradually scale up to him so you really feel it but also just rotating those 3d environments we see your tiny little your tiny little sprite and this gigantic you know aircraft hangar um that feeling can't be really be replicated in a sustainable way in other other and like other media because yeah. you know that's the and way the I feel might... about um, Sephiroth. How the way they systematize Sephiroth's power in the right, Nibelheim flashback. flashback. Right, right. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. Um, I don't. Good luck. Wow. I, I don't. Good luck to call this <laughs> just full they of can't. They can't do that anymore in the remake. They've already shown Sephiroth so much oh, that that they'll never yeah. be able to recreate that feeling. I, I good luck. I good luck to them. I don't. I, I don't want to be the director who inherits that. Maybe that'll be the place where they roll back everything. It's like you, Sephiroth and Cloud or, or Zach or whoever are killing you know, uh, destiny spirits in the past. And that, that resets everything. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 if I were, I just, man, I'd be, I would have May an ambient problem or something, but um, that, that I think RPGs were perfect for him. We should credit him for that. But, um, yeah. and, and I think he, he was the exact right guy. And he, there was a team of people around him, Tokita, Kitase. Um, I think, yeah. I think that, um, Hiromichi Tanaka has a um, has more of a a, 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 a Ringo Starr reputation, but he has really more of a, like a, a John Lennon input into these games um, in terms of organization and things. So I think, um, especially pacing wise, I think he was a, a key right hand man to Sakaguchi. So those gr that group of people were able to deliver um, JRPGs to the world at the perfect time with the perfect game for that. This and Chrono Trigger, I would say. Um, and we should appreciate that for what it was. And to say that things have drifted away from there since then, it's not shocking, but it is, a, you know, like, it's just like saying that, you know, drawing and painting is not as good now as it was during the Impressionist period. It was inevitable that things would change. There's photography, there's movies. Of course, people have moved on. Um, but you can still long for those days. Sure. I think I think another thing that's missing <clears throat> from a lot of people's appreciation of the uh, sort of, how all this works on the development side of things is that a lot of people don't have, uh, well, they wouldn't have obviously, but I mean like uh, an insight into uh, Japanese corporate structures, right? And in, in the West, I know at least that's a Norwegian, right? Norway is very egalitarian. So uh, <clears throat> most Norwegian companies aim for a flat corporate structure. <clears throat> that is to say that we don't like to have uh, 
uh, like a really complicated hierarchy like where you have a bunch of people on the bottom and it goes up like this but in japan it it's a pyramid right it's always been a pyramid for the most part it's still a pyramid so you have some guy on top and then you have uh, some people underneath and then you have a bunch of people underneath that again and it, it, like in the military it's all about the communication right bottom up uh, or top to bottom right and uh, the thing about somebody like Sakaguchi or anyone else working in, in Japan who are like in an, an administrative position is that, of course, it's not like Sakaguchi sat there and wrote and designed every Final Fantasy game. And anyone who thinks that will, will, are insane. But I don't think there are any people who actually thinks that. So that yeah. uh, you know, that's besides the point. But the the way that like people will say, oh, you know. Uh, look at Final Fantasy VI and Seven, Kitase, great, right? So Kitase, great. But what they don't see, and this is something that I see every time, every day at work, right, is that um, I work with some people who are really great. Uh, no, I'm not going to throw too much shade here. But usually, like in the beginning stages of any process, right, you're, you have a creative face where you throw out ideas, right? And that's... You know, it's the basic gist of like throwing shit on a on a door and seeing what sticks, right? Uh, and just putting it in a <laughs> no, no, incredibly yeah. Norwegian. Yeah, that was a little. You're good. You're good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> you get the point, right? Uh, and um, and like. Uh, for every good idea anyone in my team or I or anyone else in my company has, they have nine really bad ideas. And I mean really bad ideas. It's not the case that you you sit there as a creative person and everything that comes out of your mouth is this golden, uh, you know, boot of wisdom. That's not going to be the case. And ultimately, all those things are filtered through, right? The, 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 the pyramid. And they work their way upwards to the to the central theme uh, to the central team, right? The the central design team, and to the guy who's in charge. And he looks over those proposals and he makes a decision. Like this is great. Let's keep this. This is trash. I don't want to see it ever again because it's making my eyes bleed. And <laughs> that's like so. Like that's literal too. By the way. Because yeah, I remember, that, you remember that, right. the Hayao Miyazaki pitch where he goes, "This is an this I find this to be an offense to life itself." <laughs> <laughs> Anime was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, those guys are OGs. Oh, they are stone cold. <laughs> yeah, it's um. I'm going to continue, but I just need to make this tangent. I have a there, there's a guy who does character design uh, in my company who who had made this really beautiful drawing of this girl. Uh, with a with like a spare and like high heels and a skirt and something like it was like a half like mecca half a girl kind of thing and the, the director on my company looked at it and was like uh, i'm gonna okay you're gonna have to bleep this out he's like why the fetch is she wearing a skirt and high heels when she's a combat droid and you can see the guy was just kind of glazing over he's like well well it, it, oh, it looks good and he's like yeah and and why do you have like a practical reason for this design like does it make sense in the setting does it have do you have an explanation for this and the guy was just like struggling right he, he because he didn't he just drawn it because he thought it looked cool and he had no freaking clue how to respond to the question you could see he start sweating and he's like i'm sorry 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's just started excusing himself. And the director's just like, get back to your desk and you draw something different. <laughs> oh, and you could just see the guy was just like, he was just like, he was just like, you know, he, he yeah, about to go into like a catatonic state, right? He was, he was totally like wrecked for the rest of the day. We had to buy him uh, a beer after the work and shit and talk to him because that was pretty brutal. But so the, the, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that if you have a corporate pyramid structure with Sakaguchi on top, and we know this from interviews, people used to refer to him with nicknames like freaking King and God, like they literally called him Kami-sama on the freaking set. <laughs> and so uh, you have that guy and then you have Sakaguchi, you know, you have Kitase and the other people doing their thing and writing and they're making suggestions, obviously. Like, obviously, if you didn't have Nomura there, Cloud would not have looked like Cloud. But that doesn't mean that Cloud looked like Cloud when Nomura drew his first draft, right? And the difference between, say, for instance, Cloud looking like, uh, I don't know, looking like Sora from Kingdom Hearts and looking like Cloud might, for instance, be because somebody higher up told Nomura to tone those buckles down. We don't need that many belts on our characters, (laughs) right? Um, And so the difference is that when you remove that and you put Nomura on top of the pyramid, then Nomura gets to say, we can have as many belts on our characters as I freaking want to. And, and so I feel as if like that's that's like that's the thing that people need to understand, right? The difference between it, like who's on top of the pyramid has a huge impact on like everything else. It goes downwards, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that we're taking credit away from the designers who work hard and who draw characters and their creativity, but it means that as I said, like the guy making the choice on top is the, is the difference between whether you go with the one good idea or you go with one of the nine really bad ideas that pass by your desk every day. And I think that Sakaguchi's input there has probably been invaluable over the years at Squaresoft. I, I, three things to, to add to that. First of all, um, also as a game developer, I'm impressed that you only have nine bad ideas for every ten ideas. So, I was um, being I was I was being charitable to my team. I have ninety I have ninety ninety nine idea bad ideas for my every one hundred ideas. Um, most of my workday consists of me banging the wall that you see to the, the left of me on, on uh, with my head, trying to figure out how to solve design problems in an elegant way that won't cost a bajillion dollars. Um, just to provide some context there. Um, another thing is, um, as far as Japanese corporate structure goes, a really good piece of media you could consume to see a little bit of that is Agretsuko on Netflix. Um, it really, it's, it's like the Japanese The Office, which of course means it's anime. Um, <laughs> but it really gets into like the inner lives of office workers and the power dynamics at play and how those are changing um, in the millennial generation or not changing sometimes. Um, it's, it's really good. I recommend it highly. Um, and uh, yeah, the 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 third thing is it, looking at yeah when no when the corporate hierarchies change um, and the voice of the of the of the um, of the company changes, of course that's going to have a huge impact. Like it's when you have like a director, when you have Ryan Johnson instead of George Lucas or or J.J. Abrams instead of George Lucas directing a Star Wars movie, the voice is going to change because you can't help, you just can't help it. So I, I think it was inevitable. Um, I wish that they had had a greater awareness of what the spirit of Final Fantasy was, um, because I think it's possible to to do something well and to do something faithfully in more than one way. So I think it's possible to make a Final Fantasy game. I think 
I think that Chrono Trigger is essentially a Final Fantasy game. Oh, totally. Um, it's like a Final Fantasy Mystic Quest 2, essentially, right? Um, in, with time travel. And Except that it's good. Yeah, <laughs> well... Stop. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh. I, I, I didn't like I didn't like Final Fantasy Mystic Quest that much either. Um, but I, that's probably an artifact of when I approached it, which was after having played other games as an introductory game. Like I I really like Secret of Mana, but I understand that that game has deep flaws in its gameplay, even if the art and music still hold up beautifully. The, um, the, the, I've always been wanting to ask you what you what you feel about the hitboxes in Secret of Mana being well, so. Well, I mean, crazy. I, I have internalized them. You know, I I knew I was doing that before I was reading music, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I have internalized <laughs> them so thoroughly that even though I like the stems are going the wrong way on the page, I can still read them perfectly. Sure. Um, so, but I understand that that is an artifact of my nostalgia. Yeah. Um, but so Chrono Trigger is not that. Chrono Trigger is a brilliant game, but it also was majority written by. Um, uh, oh, it's not coming to me. Um, the, the Dragon Quest director, Yuji Hori. Hori, right? Hori. Uh, sorry. Um, so Hori did the mo- most re- of the writing on that. And Hori, as we know, is not brief. No. Um, yeah. As we have seen, he as he has gotten more space on his discs to to do things, he has written longer and longer and longer games. I I would I'd be interested to have a conversation with him because I feel like he's got a lot to say about probably anything. Um, so you know. To the fact that he was brief on Chrono Trigger says a lot about um, how good Sakaguchi was at his job wh- yeah. and what the scope of that job was, right? Sakaguchi didn't really write that plot. He probably had a little bit of input. Um, it was Kato and, and, and Hori, and Sakaguchi was just like, pare down, pare down, make it easier. And he was, of course, right. Chrono Trigger turned out to be just the right level of difficulty to reach millions and millions of people over over decades and the gra- everything was just sort of pitch perfect the pacing was perfect we know that they cut dungeons they cut the singing mountain so you know yeah. just uh, sakaguchi's probably biggest role on on chrono trigger was just cutting just like getting the scissors being da, 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 da. and to be able to say that to yuji hori's face right like whoa yeah. um who at the time had the probably had the better career yeah. um you know uh, at Final least Fantasy in VI. japan right because yeah, yeah how right. much which, bigger which dragon the quest only thing is they there. cared about only thing they cared about, because we and we know it till at least probably 2010 that they weren't, re- or maybe t- 2008 they were not paying attention to the outside world very much. Xenogears, the the the, the director of the president of Sh- uh, SquareSoft said to um, uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, "If your game sells a million copies, we'll make a sequel." It sold 900,000 in Japan and then another 200,000 in the West, but they didn't make a sequel because Gaijin copies are not real copies. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so you know, like. In Japan, you know, Hori was the legend, but Sakaguchi was just this strong, incredibly strong-willed person, I guess. Um, and the evidence certainly suggests it. Um, and, th- and the last thing I want to say is that it makes me wonder how um, Kaori Tanaka, or Soraya Saga, as her pen name goes, like how a personality like that integrated. I mean, obviously, she did very well in the company. Um, she's a brilliant artist, and 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 but like, how does someone who's so gentle and and, and hates conflict? work in a in a team with so full of so many strong wills um that must have been very good but she she had a huge impact right she you know kitase another strong will um it would and kitase and between kitase and sakaguchi and, and final fantasy six one wonders where there was any creative room in the whole at all but we know that uh tanaka drew many of those sprites um she wrote out the the figaro brothers uh plot line um she did a lot and it was like how, how did i i'm amazed i i take my hat off to her because to navigate the, the, the levels of diva personality that were going on there and still have input while not being yourself, you know, this double bladed warrior uh, makes me is like, wow, that's that's mature politics at its best in, in the in the art space. Um, OK, so 
we've gone over a lot here. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot to review, a lot to think about as uh, we think about maybe future videos we want to make. But I want to turn it to Heon one more time um, to get any ideas that you have on what what you see in Sakaguchi's formula. Um, go ahead. Well, I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> yeah, if we're just talking about his JRPG formula, I think there's like a macro and a micro level to look at it. On a macro level, it's, it's fairly obvious, right? It's uh, command-based combat, a world map, uh, you know, uh, or the overworld, if you want to call it that. It's... Uh, dungeons and combat that wraps up rarely, uh, fairly quickly and it's um, a nice combination of adult storytelling and charming sort of uh, childhood fairy tales mixed together in a in a jolly fashion right and that's kind of the thing that's why i find myself kind of sad because i feel as if the sakaguchi formula for what a final fantasy game is is a formula that there is no replacement for, right? A lot of people will say, right, if you if you sort of feel as if you're a disenfranchised old veteran JRPG player and you're sitting here thinking, like, why isn't there any game for me to play? People will say, well, go play Dragon Quest or go play Persona or go play this or that, right? And the mm -hmm. problem is that none of those games are, are replacements for what the classic Final Fantasy is, right? Persona uh, games are dungeon crawlers set in like a contemporary Japanese setting with a lot of focus on visual novel uh, shenanigans and stuff like that. It, that's not what I was into with Final Fantasy. They're not a replacement, right? Mm -hmm. Dragon Quest has all the gameplay trappings of a Final Fantasy game, but in it, like the 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 character progression systems are a lot more traditional right than final fantasy games are and the tone is a lot more on the comedic side i think in terms of its both its presentation and its dialogue writing they are not a replacement for something like final fantasy 6 VI or 7 VII or 9 right um uh, people will say go play Bravely Default, and Bravely Default is probably what the, the closest you can get to something like a Final Fantasy IV uh, or a Final Fantasy III. I think that's basically what they are. They are Final Fantasy III and V turned into like a, like a formula that just keeps going, but they're not a Final Fantasy IV or a Final Fantasy VI or a Final Fantasy VII. The problem is that there is literally no game no franchise that does exactly what those games does. And I think that four, uh, six, seven, nine, those are probably the ones that are the closest in, in, to each other within like the, 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 the final fantasy mythos of having like a unified um, spirit, I would say, of at least classic final fantasy post Sakaguchi leaving, right? There's... Um, the the way that the, the the particular type of storytelling uh, tropes that you see the 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 tone the the balancing of comedic elements and high dramatic liturgy uh, the the particular type of approach when it comes to character customization systems and the changes and iterations that you see um, the structure the classical structure the scene maps the world map the battle scenes right uh, the pacing. Those games seem to, um, and of course, I'm not drawing kind of three and five out of that. Uh, they're, for the most part, very similar. I'm just saying that I think they have a more um, 
they they feel a bit more on the lighthearted side, even though they have their share of dramatic moments as well. And they feel a bit closer to the DNA of something like a Dragon Quest, I think, on the tonal side of things, um, than say four and six and seven and nine. And so, like the thing that's sad for me, I, I respect Square Enix's. They own the IP. They can do whatever they want with it, and I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm fine with people liking other Final Fantasies or desiring Final Fantasy to go in a different direction or enjoying action combat more. All these things are fine. The reason I'm sitting here sad is because those changes and those new titles have come at the expense of the DNA of the old one, right? I'm sitting here thinking, okay, if you love Final Fantasy XV, that's great. But Final Fantasy XV could have been simply named, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, oh, what could it? It could have been named Kingsclave the game or something along. So I don't know, like whatever. Just give it some, a name, right? Some cool. uh, some freaking uh, yeah spin on whatever. Yeah, uh, Legend of the Astrals, right? No, it could what's have been called. Been? Yeah, it could have just been called whatever it was called and be a different game, and then you could have had those Final Fantasies still. But that's not the reality that we live in. We live in the reality with the where. Uh, the particular type of Final Fantasy that I think is the most indicative of uh, Sakaguchi's style do not exist anymore because nobody's making them. And uh, all the other people who still make JRPGs make very different kind of JRPGs that I'm not that fond of, right? So it means that I'm kind of sitting here left out in the cold without uh, any real alternative to the type of JRPG that I like the most. Um, with a bunch of people who don't seem to actually be able to appreciate or recognize that, telling me to go play Persona, as if that's an actual like response to that uh, conundrum. It's like, yeah, Persona's a great game. But, like, it's like telling a person uh, who's like, I wonder if there's something I can read like Lord of the Rings, and they tell you to go read Narnia, right? It's like... It's... <laughs> On the surface like, level, there are connections, but they don't go very deep. Yeah, like, mm, yeah, sh sh mm, yeah, yes and no. <laughs> like, close, but no cigar, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of, I'm, I'm replaying uh, Bradley Default right now, and that's kind of how I feel about that. I really love it. I'm playing and having fun. It reminds me a lot of Final Fantasy V. It reminds me a lot of Final, Fan uh, Final Fantasy III. Um, it's, it's cool. It's fun. But... It's a close but no cigar kind of thing, right? I'm sitting here looking at this. If only it had a, like a, a like a bit more of that Final Fantasy VI storytelling, or a bit more of that Final Fantasy VII storytelling, or a bit more of that Final Fantasy IX storytelling. You know that little extra oomph and dramatic gravitas that gave those games, um, I don't know, like lasting impact. I'm sitting here. Like, I'm laughing along. You know, the, the dialogue is clever. It's well-written. It's polished, right? And the characters are, are amusing. Um, the, the story is kind of just kind of plodding along, right? But there's there's no Aerith dying, right? There's no opera house scene. There's no Vivi uh, kind of grappling with his, uh, you know, existence. There's no Sedane waking up in that chamber. And, and uh, you know, those kind of scenes, those kind of high drama scenes that that just seem that just kind of scream like this this is a scene for the ages right this is what you're going to remember this game for and that's going to keep it alive in your heart right those are 
I think the scenes that set those particular games apart and that perhaps are most succinctly exactly what I'm looking for um, in combination with all the other facets of a Sakaguchi game. And I think he understands this. I think he, he, has, a JR, he has an orthodox JRPG formula and he combines that with uh, a, a very finely balanced uh, recipe for storytelling that I particular am drawn to and I enjoy and I love. And it's difficult to find a game that lines up all of those elements, right? It has the world map. It has the command-based battle system. It has a versatile character development system. It has a high stakes, right, um, uh, sort of uh, dramatic uh, a story with dramatic gravitas and with also like nice uh, moments of levity. Uh, just getting all of those things lined up—that is what I would call the spirit of a Final Fantasy, right? And that game does not exist in two thousand and twenty. And that makes me very sad, right? Telling me to go play Persona or Dragon Quest or uh, the Final Fantasy VII Remake, that is not a response to that because none of those games are exactly that. And um, that makes me very sad. Hmm. I just want to jump in here and say that Heon is more eloquent in his third language than I am in my first. Uh, <laughs> 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 um a moment of just absolute dejection. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I, I would say that everything that he said is is absolutely true in terms of tone and the spirit of Final Fantasy. I think I would call it the voice, right? The voice of Final Fantasy of, of Final Fantasy in general. Yeah, nailed it. He nailed it. I'm a professional Final Fantasy scholar, and this guy nailed it. So, yeah, I uh, I agree to to a large extent. And like this is you know a sentiment that I shared, say in my video on Xenoblade Chronicles where I had been for a long time at well, what I thought was a long time at that time, it had only been maybe a decade, <laughs> but, um, now it's been two <laughs> and I was searching for that, you know, that type of RPG that you just described Heon. like what happened to these games square used to make them. I don't, I can't find them anymore. I didn't find it in final fantasy 13. I, I didn't find it. I, I hadn't played lost odyssey at the time. Um, but that's probably the only example I can think of during that twenty early 2000s to 2010 span of a game that captured what you're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean, I think Xenoblade Chronicles, the first one, definitely not Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for me, but was like maybe the only game I can think of, uh, and then last story, that really nailed what you're talking about, all of the elements you're talking about. Of course, I, I, I played and loved Bravely Default as well. And I think on the gameplay side, like Bravely, Bravely Default probably gets closer than anything else I've played to like a 1990s Squaresoft RPG. It's just missing that the, the story side of it, right? That's <laughs> yeah. the one piece it's missing. Otherwise, that could replace Final Fantasy for me now. That would be the new Final Fantasy for me. Um, that's that's the frustration, right? Because like it's yeah. the same thing. I was looking at the Tokyo J, uh, Tokyo RPG Factory games, right? And it's like they released I Am Setsuna. I'm like, this too is it, it's close, mm -hmm. but like, where's the rest of it? Yeah, <laughs> you get and, and it always makes me so de dejected because I'm like, it's so close. You just had to do that little extra thing, and they never do. 
And it's always, that's what it always feels like. You go play this other JRPG and it's like, yeah, they, they've got that and that and that. And the, like they cross out maybe three of the things on the checklist. And then the, the, the two remaining things are never there. And it always leaves like a gap and makes it very hard for me to like, I, I, oof. so yeah. all that said, here's the answer, everybody. And this is what I, I'm ultimately wrapping up to. We Come have, on. we have two games being made right now by both of the people with me on the panel here who have this priority of recapturing that in the games that they are making. So look forward to Quartet, which uh is is going to be out when do you think you'll have a demo ready for that um i think the demo i'm I'm hoping in within a month probably before the end of may um we'll see uh tech you know happens uh we have maps built i have a story written um character animations are a check so we just need to i mean there's some code that needs to go into it i'll say this for it we we have called it our final fantasy six um that is the artistic goal i mean i wrote a book on final fantasy six so that i could I could do that. Um, I'm not game, saying yeah. I'm, I can't guarantee I deliver, but damn, I'm going to try. Yeah, that's what you're aiming for. So um, I will keep everyone here and even on the main channel, like updated on that. Um, we've had Tyler uh, on the podcast in the past, uh, guy who does music for the Summer Tyler Classic Mary, Games. He's yeah. also producing it. Yeah, he's a producer on it. So I'll be in touch with you guys as soon as you have something ready. Um, I will push it for sure on the channel. Uh, you know, do some impressions, uh, talk about it. And, uh, and of course, everyone look into the reverse design series. I'll have links for that in the description as well. Um, Eon, anything that you'd like to say regarding the stuff that you're working on? No, I'm, I'm keeping that on the down low. Close, close to the uh, chest. I, I have no NDA. I own it. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you need English lessons, he can give them to you because this is better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Okay. Anyway. Well, um, guys, thanks for joining me. Uh, appreciate it. This was a good uh, way, I think, to kind of just release the the remainder of like the things I had on my mind, the the last of the things I wanted to say regarding Final Fantasy VII Remake, about some of my internal grievances regarding like where the series has come since Sakaguchi has left, and uh, I'll just leave it off by saying, you know. If you, if those of you out there are into what they're doing now, like, I'm not trying to persuade you not to like it. I'm just trying, because you guys, you probe me, you come to me and you say, please tell me what you think about Final Fantasy VII Remake. So I'm telling you that with honesty, but uh, if you love it, like, good, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Like, awesome. Look forward to cool stuff. Uh, you don't have to listen to what I'm saying and internalize it if you don't want to, but uh Go ahead. That's actually a great advice, right? That's uh, I've I've I sometimes uh, play with the idea of making recordings and stuff like this, and the only time I have it always starts with the statement: "If you, if if you hear anything that you think might like trigger you in regards to my opinion, don't listen to what I'm about <laughs> to say. Just just turn off the video. It's not worth it, right? Don't leave yeah. a comment. Don't listen to it. Don't waste your time with it. Like I, I, I feel as if if you hear somebody open their mouth and they're about to say something that you can just sense on the sixth sense level yeah. that this is going to make me real pissed off and just ruin my day and make every, my life miserable, then 
why bother, right? I, I don't understand why they're actually then listening through the whole of it and then get real frustrated and type out the comment and then they're like, yeah, that, that really improved my quality of life. Well, no, it didn't. You just you just fucked yourself. Quarantine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the quarantine. <laughs> so don't do so, that. Yeah. So, yeah. Support Mike. In any case, or, or don't. If you don't like what I have to say, you're free to go listen to Maximilian Dude or whoever is like a total hype machine for this game, right? Like, go enjoy it enjoy it to the fullest extent. I'm not here to take away from that. I'm just here to tell you I'm not into it. And that's it. All right, guys. That's it. Uh, we're going to roll going to roll off now. Take it Peace easy. Peace out. Great to talk to you. My, my Have a good day. Sorry, that's perfect good day. timing. Perfect timing. See you later. Yeah. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>